0: Hello folks and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host Recluse, aka Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the VISA blog and author of A Special Relationship, Trump-Epstein and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visabiew.blogspot.com. That's v i s u p v i e w all one word. dot blogspot all one word. dot com, and procure a copy of that book and other works at the Farm's official store, which is at thefarmpodcast.store. That is thefarmpodcast all one word. dot store. And please consider signing up for the Farms Patron. We've got two tiers now. On the first one, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive gifts and content. You get that, too, on the added tier in addition to our monthly Zoom party. Uh, some solo State of the Unions with recluse, exclusive access, and the ongoing investigations I'm doing and a lot of other goodies, guys. I try to make it well worth your while. So keep that in mind. All right. Today's guest is making his maiden appearance on the farm. He is an independent researcher with three decades of experience in themed entertainment and museum exib- exib- exhibit fabrications, which is quite an apt uh, skill set for our subject today, I might add. Uh, he's also an eight-time winner of the Themed Entertainment Association's annual i I'm not going to try to butcher the pronunciation of that, award. Besides all that, he is the author of a remarkable book called Solving the Bill Papers Masonic Answers to America's Mysteries Volume 1. I could not be more excited for this show. This is a great book and it is going to be so fun. So folks, I give you guys the great Paul G. Stewart.
1: Paul, thank you for dropping by today, sir. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for uh, for showing interest in this arcane and bizarre subject. Um, I wrote this book about seven years ago, so uh, I apologize if I'm not I'm I'm trying to get to in my own, my own book. I have been taking a look at it for a little bit because I'm working overseas. So, um, you know, you may stump me with some of your questions, but I think, I think I'm pretty much boned up on it. So I appreciate you, uh, trying to tackle this subject, uh, you know, on air. It's, it's a bit, it's a bit of a visual subject. So I hope we can get through it. We don't lose people.
0: Yeah, it'll be a little bit of a challenge, but I, I think we can work this out
1: though. But, um,
0: Sorry, right, guys. Uh, like I said, this is going to be a great show. It is actually the second installment in the Farm's Competing Notions of America's Past series, if the uh, title didn't uh, already cue uh, you guys into that. So, over the decades, a variety of groups have tried to craft their own founding mythos for this nation. And at the forefront of these efforts have been the Masons and the Mormons. In more recent years, some more nefarious sects like white nationalists and even some black nationalists have gotten in on the act, along with the inevitable esoterics and so forth. For the first installment, we opened up in contemporary times and explored the creative approaches acclu- approaches to archaeology employed by Hakim Pei. Thought that was rather fitting as he has recently shed his mortal coil and has gone to great lengths to try to create an entire elaborate mythos around the Ben Ismail tribe and a lot of other kind of stuff in the Great Lakes region. Yes, it's quite a yarn involving Native Americans, free slaves, Scots, Irish, and a quasi-Sufi, you know, uh, Shangri-La kind of thing. It's a good yarn, but I suspect it doesn't have much basis in reality. Uh, And this is the true meaning of his reading of a renegade history. It's all designed to create a certain mythos about the origins of the country to create a new narrative. So Bay certainly did not start this process. And point of fact, a variety of groups have been competing with one another for this legacy and the niece of this nation's for some time. And two of the biggest players in these efforts had been the Masons and the Mormons. The Mormons will be looked at in the next installment and this one we are going to look at one of the greatest Masonic fabrications ever and links to which certain groups would go for a good joke. It's quite a story and revolves around one of the most infamous treasure hunts in American history and involves something called the Beale Papers. Now, if you guys aren't familiar with those, I'm gonna have a link up in the description so that uh, if you are so inclined, you can peruse them as we are going through this. It will probably make it a little easier as this deals with a lot of cypher keys and what have you. So that way you might have some kind of visual representation in front of you. And on a personal note too, um, this is really exciting for me because it's unfolding in the kind of area that I uh, have spent a good chunk of my life in. Uh, I live on land that was originally uh, owned by Lord Fairfax and uh, was eventually purchased by George Washington's personal physician, Dr. James uh, Craig, I believe, C-R-A-I-K, who I believe was a Freemason. Uh, So yeah, um, and then certainly I have pretty strong ties to the Winchester area, which we'll probably mention here at some point. So this is all kind of like in the neck of the woods that I grew up, which uh, for me at least provides a fascinating context to it. And certainly if you know this area around here, it's uh, Makes this stuff even more interesting. But regardless, this is going to be a really good show, guys. Uh, we're dealing with a person here who is at the forefront of really legitimate scholarly research on these esoteric orders. Um, you know, I know a lot of people listening to this are pretty astute about this, but most of the stuff written about Masons is utter garbage. And I am happy to give you a guy who really knows his stuff on this subject. So on that note, let's start exploring this stuff. Uh, fascinating topic. All right, Paul, let's start out with the basics. What is the conventional story concerning the Beale Papers, and what is the narrative in
1: turn that they tell us? So the Beale Papers were advertised in 1885 as an as-for-purchased pamphlet within the pages of the Lindsbergh Brazilian newspaper. Uh, it was sold at 50 cent a copy. A pamphlet contained 20 pages of narrative and three ciphered texts. Um, one of these texts provides the description of a treasure, an amazing treasure, about two or three tons of gold and silver and jewels. And then one cipher text describes where the treasure is located, and one provides the names and the residences of the supposed beneficiaries of this treasure. But the pamphlet, even after being discounted to 10 cents, really never produced any revenue for the paper, and it never produced any revenue for anyone, really. So it really kind of went the way of the dodo. Um, It just kind of went extinct, and and nothing really said. It kind of just went out of fashion and no one said anything about it until about 1898 when a guy named George Hart uh, took up the challenge um, he was tasked by his own boss to make a bunch of uh, copies this is before copy machines right so he had make, make a bunch of handwritten copies of one of the ciphers cipher number one which is the which was the where the, the treasure was supposedly located. intrigued by what he was doing he asked his boss, you know, what What am I doing? I said, well, this is, this leads to a treasure. If you can figure out the key document to these numbers, like each number representing a letter and a word and some key document in the book, you could figure out where these tons of treasures are. I mean, he goes, well, how do you know it's a treasure? Because well, there's there's a whole narrative to this. So he said, well, do you mind if I make myself a copy? And then uh, his boss, Mr. Hazelwood said, yeah, no problem. So he made himself a copy and he tried it and He said, well, I need the rest of this. So he realized that the, the actual narrative was and the whole story was located in Lynchburg and he was in Roanoke. So he went over to Lynchburg and he actually met the guy, James B. Ward, who actually published the paper through the through the newspaper. And James B. Ward himself gave him a full 23 page copy. And now he was fully hooked. And so he got his younger brother Clayton, or actually his older brother Clayton Hart, involved with it. And for 14 years, they struggled to try to I'd figure out how to solve these papers and they couldn't do it. So after that, they kind of, the papers themselves tell you, don't get too crazy with this thing. Don't devote your life to it. Don't throw your way, your life savings. Don't get too crazy with it because the accession will ruin you. And so they actually, you know, they hated that, that, that advice and put them down, but they never lost interest in the papers. So, and thanks to them though, they, they, you know, in 1924, the, he, uh, George, uh, Hart sent a copy of these papers to the Riverside Lab in Geneva, Illinois, and gave it to their kind of crack, crack, uh, cryptographers. And they kind of dismissed it. They well, this is probably just, you know, this is probably the work of a professional. And if, if a professional was having anything to do with it, they probably solved it and the treasure's long gone or it's a complete fabrication and it's a joke. Just don't worry about it. And never satisfied with that. He decided to, about a decade later, send it to a woman named Elizabeth Friedman. She was the wife of, of William Friedman, the very famed uh, cryptographer, and she kind of dismissed it as well, but her husband didn't. He was intrigued by this, but this is a 1938, they're looking at it, and then we get into World War II, and he kind of puts it in the back burner, but he does have some of the students and people see if they could sort of just, you know, these top cryptographers in the United States, see if they could crack this thing and they could get nowhere with it. So. In 1948, Friedman goes down to Lynchburg and actually meets some of the descendants of James B. Ward and kind of gives him a once over and said, look, do you think this is real? Did James B. Ward create this? Is it a fake? Is it a site? You know, it's like, we don't think it's a fake. You know, our, our grandfather did die penniless, as, as described in the, in, the, in, the, um, in the papers, potentially. And but they, they had a sort of mixed reaction as to whether he was actually involved, because the papers suggest that James B. Ward was simply acting as an agent for the actual author who published these things. So, but he was never able, this famous cryptographer was never able to get anywhere on this. So it was, but um, so in 1952, George Hart, being a very elderly man at this point, decides to write his own version of the Beale paper, sort of narrative to the narrative, and, and puts it in the, in the Lynchburg Library, where it, it, it caught at the attention of a national magazine in 1964, and then by the late 1960s, the, the, the ciphers were then Um, there was, there was a national cipher club devoted to nothing but trying to solve these ciphers. And that was, you know, they were talking 50 plus years ago and no one's been able to, to solve this thing. So what are they? So the Beale papers are a story within a story within a story. They are, like I said, 23 pages, 20 pages of narrative. They talk about a group of Virginians, 30 of them, And they they are um, you don't know exactly where they're from, but they all meet at at, at a hotel in Lynchburg, and uh, and they they stay there for a matter of months, and then they take off, Um, and they come periodically come back to this hotel, and the the guy James James um, excuse me Thomas J Beale uh, the the protagonist of the story becomes intimate friends with the innkeeper that they stay at guy named Robert Morris and. The, um, over the over the years basically um, he eventually entrusts Robert Morris with a box and in this box are these ciphers and and Thomas J Beale basically says you know if I don't return after 10 years like we've been doing my me and my my mates we've been going out to the west and we've been hunting buffalo we've been hunting grizzlies um, but we found something on the way we found a lot of treasure and um and we we had to hide it and you know um If something were to happen to us and nobody ever returns with it, I want you to have the the ability to take this treasure, find it, unearth it, and then give it to the beneficiaries that were called out in in the the third cipher and cut yourself in on the deal when you do. So if no one returns in 10 years to do this, um, then I'll have another compatriot who has been tasked with giving you the key to the ciphers. And then between the two of you or between you, you figure out the ciphers and then do what I told you to do. Well, 10 years come and go. And this this thing, no one from the Beale party ever shows up and the guy with the key never shows up so robert morris being the nice guy that he is waits 23 years before he actually opens the box and he can't solve the thing he look he looks at it he can't without the key he can't go anywhere with it so he holds on to the papers until 1862 and at that point looks gonna be 1845 1845 he, he he unloads the bomb the unknown author and the unknown author can't figure them out. He, he does figure out cipher number two, which is the description of the treasure. And when you read the description, which was included in the Beale papers, it gives you, you know, the it's, it's an amazing amount of wealth. It's thousands and thousands of pounds of gold and silver and and jewels. And they, they were unearthed somewhere in, it seems seemingly from the description, somewhere in either northeastern New Mexico or southwest, southeastern um, uh, Colorado somewhere. And between the years 1817 and 1822. Um, and, uh, but he's never able to get any farther than that. So in 1862, he, he, he starts to try to, un, you know, uh, he tries to figure these things out. He can't do it. By 1885, he's disgusted with the whole thing. He, he publishes the papers because he's lost everything. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's gotten away from being focused on his family, he's lost his business, he's done everything. He's completely devoted his life to trying to solve this and make him millions of dollars and he was unable to. So that's the big lure. You know, people who believe that the Beale papers to be true ignore the second cipher, completely ignore the third one because that's the beneficiaries and they've been dead for, for now for probably close to 200 years. So there's the, everybody's completely and solely, solely focused on cipher number one, which is where is the treasure? And people have spent their life fortunes going out there digging, believe it or not. So that, that is, the, in a nutshell, that is the explanation of the Beale papers.
0: Yes, that was very well said, Paul.
1: Thanks.
0: <laughs> All right. So um, for you, one of the first things that jumped out about the Bale papers were the errors in the dates, locations, and so forth. Can you give us an overview of some of the most significant ones before we go forward?
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I got intrigued this because I read a, uh, a thing by Joe Nickel, a famous uh, skeptic wrote in a book called Mysterious Realm, about 30 years ago, that he thought the whole thing was just a, a Masonic illusion, because there was talking about the vault, and the crypt and everything else. And, and I said, you know, I, I, as I read the papers, I came away with the same sort of conclusion, but I was like, well, this is a lot of effort for just that, you know, 23 pages, 20 pages of a very complicated narrative. Because You have to realize which voice is talking and then a lot of ciphers. So it seems like, well, if this is Masonic, it seems like there'd be much more to it than just this. So I started looking at it and I started doing some heavy research. And I realized that pretty early on that, that Thomas J. Beale writes three letters to the innkeeper, Robert Morris. And in one of the letters, and these are all written in 1822, and in one of the letters, he actually uh, references a visit in 1820 to Robert Morris. The fact is, though, that Robert Morris didn't own a hotel in 1822, and especially not in 1820. He didn't own a hotel until 1824, so these letters could not have been written. So that was my first clue that there was something funky going on. And then, um, and then I started to look at the Declaration of Independence the, the, that was used as the key document for cipher number two. Um, That's what the that's what the unknown author said. He used the Declaration of Independence. So it would have had to been the Declaration of Independence that would have been available to Beale in 1820. when he encoded these things, not the later versions of it, because the the language was changed, it was modified and and made uh, more modern in the later versions. Um, But what I found is if you actually do the work and kind of check the unknown authors uh, work on the second cipher with the Declaration of Independence, doesn't matter which version, of it, um, you get 141 mistakes. There's so many mistakes, in fact, that it's almost completely unintelligible. It doesn't produce the message that the Beale paper says it does. However, if you use the Beale paper version of the Declaration of Independence, the one that's in the papers, it's only 28 mistakes. So you get about a 30% improvement by using a version of the uh, the Declaration of Independence that doesn't exist. And that paper would not have been available to Thomas J. Beale in 1820 because it didn't exist. It was written by the author, which means that one document was written by the other for the for the other document. You know, I mean, so there was no this improvement couldn't could not be possible, you know, and that's just the that's just on the basics. But there's also this the historical reality. I mean, in 1817, we're talking five years before even the thought of creating the Santa Fe Trail. And that's where that's where the Beale paper Beal party said that they wintered was in 1817. They went to Spanish owned Santa Fe and wintered there, which I it's, it's impossible this happened. Um, it's absolutely impossible, and that they this party of thirty made journey back and forth for five years and there's no mention of them in, in any documents by anybody. And there's no mention in Spanish record, records and Mexican records, American records, there's no Native American records, there's no military records, there's no nothing from that entire journey back and forth. And, 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 and what's really strange about that is that single visits by like Zebulon Pike, for example, where he got arrested with us with the same party at his party the 30 in 1807 he went out there looking for the source of the Red River and he got arrested by, uh, by Spanish uh, military and brought to Santa Fe and, and stood trial and then because of who he was he didn't he didn't get prosecuted but but you know he was there for a month while they tried to figure out what to do with him and you know he's all over the record book so how is it that a party of 30 armed Americans um, you know journeyed in and out of the Santa Fe area without a mention I just find it incredulous? There's also, where well, there was a massive drought in 1820. I mean, talking massive, where the, the people kind of just fled into the hills, and and he doesn't mention this at all. You know, there's no mention of a drought, um, one of the biggest droughts in in the in the history of the Southwest. So, and and why even go to Santa Fe if you're the, the when what Beale says that he the original purpose of actually going out west was to hunt game to hunt buffalo and hunt grizzlies. So, you know, if you're if you're um, traveling from Virginia and you get to St. Louis, that's not a that's not an unreasonable suggestion to happen. But once you get to St. Louis, you have basically take a keel boat up the Missouri or Kansas River to the west side of the state. But once you're there, you're in the Great Plains and you have all the game you want. Why go another 500 miles across the desert to Santa Fe? You know, they're just, just, the whole story itself doesn't make any sense. So that's when I started to realize there's something wrong with this, story there's something else going on here
0: so one of the things that's kind of interesting to me about that are you um are you familiar with James Shelby Downard Paul I'm not uh he is one of the kookiest conspiracy titan well whether or not Downard even existed is a matter of some debate but um There's a really famous essay attributed to him called King Kill 33, The Masonic Assassination of JFK or something like that that was also co-written by the quote-unquote revisionist historian Michael A. Hoffman. Anyway, um, it's quite celebrated in a lot of conspiracy circles and it became a bit of a pop culture staple. Um, Marilyn Manson did a song about it and so forth. But anyway, um, later... There was a biography of Downard published called The Carnival of Life and Death. Um, it's frankly almost unreadable, but having gone through your book, it gave me a new perspective on it because it's kind of the same thing. There are just a lot of baffling Uh, historical inaccuracies in it like you know they're referring to fdr for instance being the president i think during like the first world war instead of the second world war (laughs) and i know that hoffman um and his compatriot william grimstead another guy who's kind of involved for years with the downward thing we're definitely familiar with Bale. um in fact they uh grimstead's done a whole thing with Bale being like one of the big significant kind of place names throughout the united states for 14 spots and what have you so yeah. i just wanted to kind of throw that out there how um you know this is it's a possible method, you know, to kind of keep this in mind, listeners, as we're going through this, how, you know, you might even see like contemporary variations of the techniques that were used in the bail Papers and things that you've read and you were never aware of them. Um, but it is definitely a, a fascinating aspect of all this to keep in mind. Uh, but anyway, sorry about the interjection there.
1: Well, that's OK. No, I mean, uh, I, as you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, uh, the, the fact that the get, Freemasonry gets a there's so much junk out there, but people just don't understand what Freemasonry is and what it isn't and what it signifies and what it doesn't signify. And the, the history of Freemasonry, particularly. The well, there's,
0: there's not a uniform Freemasonry. There is not. I mean, that's a big part of the problem. I mean, I yeah. always kind of ask people when you say Masonry, are you talking about like the English kind, you mean the the Celtic kind? Like, what are you
1: talking about? Are yeah, you talking, word, right? You're talking you're Scottish, right? French, right? What are you talking? You know, um, my dad was a 33 degree, he's a 33 degree Mason. Well, there's only one, one system that actually has that, you know? Um, and to be a Mason, you only need three degrees. There's no, all the essence. All the other stuff is just additional fun. It, it's not necessary. You can become a third degree Mason, which is all you need, you're a master Mason, and you, and you become an official Mason and you can hold that rank for the rest of your life. And you're still be considered a Mason. The rest yeah. of the stuff are just dependent bodies and they're not necessary, not required, not mandatory. Um, you know, um, but yeah, that the Freemasonry, well, well this is what what I said I started looking at this thing and I said, you yeah, okay, know, let's get into
0: the big part of your premise here about cryptic masonry. It's it's also brown masonry that people are not familiar with at all. So right yeah, I'll break this subject down for us before we really dive in here because people need to have a firm background of it to understand what we're going to be talking about.
1: Yeah. For me, I, again like like I was saying, I could explain all of the answers of what I found in these papers without the context of it makes no sense. And so I'm convinced. That yes this is a masonic document and yes it was done by you know by a specific group of freemasons and and why it was done was not as a joke but as a the reason why the declaration of independence was used as the key document again it's an allusion to the fact that free Ma- uh, the, the cryptic right at the time period in the 1880s had just gained its in, its own independence as a, a recognized appendant, independent appended independent body of freemasonry and so, if you don't know what cryptic right is, um, right now, today, it's part of the York Right system, and the York Right system is 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 different than the Scottish right, and it's hard, hard to explain this. So, I'm I'm, I'm going to dive back a little bit and talk about the beginnings of Freemasonry and how it translated itself in the United States, and 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 why why the setup the setup is important because now you'll understand when you under, when you understand the setup, you understand why the Bill Papers were written. So. Um, Freemasonry. we know that Freemasonry existed in the 1500s. We don't know exactly when. We have the first verified documentation of Freemasonry as an actual recognizable you know, uh, speculative masonry, not operative people building the buildings, but speculative masonry in 1599. But we know that, the, that there were active lodges in the, throughout the 1600s. And by, the, by 1717, the Grand Lodge of, of London uh, was created by four lodges you know, for those lodges to have have been, for the Grand Lodge to create it, you had to have existing lodges. And so we know for a fact that this is, but but once it declared as it's sort of publicly declared itself, it exploded in popularity in Europe, but it's a different type of popularity than it is in, in the United States. So in 1717, you know there England was still running the United States uh, there was no United States we were just colonies and and the people that joined masonry in Europe were the enlightened masses they, they they were the rich they were the powerful they were the learned they were the you know the scientists the professors the you know the, the nobles they were the ones doing it and they were doing it because a lot of these guys would get persecuted if they were to suggest some of the things that were being thrown about during the enlightenment so they wanted to f- create a, a an air you know a a place after hours where they could go and talk you know talk shop and not get persecuted and not get you know kicked out of their jobs and kicked out of their professorships and things like that so they created up you know there's this, this freemasonic um uh, system that was essentially a based on the on the idea of a union guildsman of 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 actual operative masons which is you know that it's it's a, basically it's it's, that, it's analogies you know be, uh, to build a strong house you need a strong foundation and well to be a strong man you need a strong foundation you need a moral basis to be you know it's like that kind of thing and um as, as it sort of publicly declared itself, there was lodges in Europe and the continent, particularly in France and Germany, that also kind of declared themselves allied to the Scottish and the English branches. And so it, it just grew like crazy throughout the 1720s into the early 1730s. And then there was a call pretty early on for additional, additional degrees beyond the mandatory three. And this is where the fun starts beginning. So um, you started having all these creation of all these degrees and these different systems. And then pretty soon you started having splits in the Grand Lodge of England where the, there were people called the moderns and there was people called the ancient because some people believe that these, these degrees that were coming out were written you know, five years ago. Some of them said, no, these might've been written five years ago, but they're actually 5,000 years old. They have roots that go back to, you know, Sumer and, you know, Babylonia and all this kind of stuff. So you had this split between moderns and ancients. And by the time you get into the 1770s, there's just just mayhem. And so there was a, there was a a council of Willembad in 1780 that was actually um, attended even by the Bavarian Illuminati, which they tried to, Sort of makes sense of you know of of what was going on. So like a guy who ran the Illuminati, uh, album, Adam Weishaupt. He actually he you know there's a lot of people who believe that like the Templar degrees, for instance, were actually written by the Templars. They were Templar degrees that were that Templars themselves in this you know a, a, you know 700 years earlier were actually or thousand, you know were actually taking. And then so he goes well I, well, I want you to prove it prove it, prove that these are Templar degrees, and they couldn't, and so these, uh, that basically killed off a, a whole branch of Freemasonry called the Rite of Strict, Strict Observance, and what the, and what it did do, though, is it kind of propelled what is now called Scottish Rite to the forefront, so you had, throughout the 1700s, you had this sort of creation of the explosion in Europe of all these degrees, so in the United States, though, now we've, in the same time period, uh, you've got two... Basically, I wouldn't say competing rights, but two different Masonic systems. You have the York right, which is also called American right. And you have a Scottish right. And Scottish right gets codified in 17- 1802. And this is the, the degree system that has 33 degrees. And, um, and, and then what, what happens is that it, it, although you have Scottish right and you have York right, there's still all these other degrees that don't get kind of in, integrated into the system. So they're sort of free floating. They're called side degrees. And you're willing, you're perfectly free to take them, but they're not going to advance you in your in your in you know enlightenment. They're not official degrees. And so you would have these traveling masons that were trying to make a buck basically but they would they had but they would man ma- you know memorize these the, the degrees of uh, the ritual and basically travel down from Maine all the way down to Florida and then be- try to bestow these degrees on, on any mason who was sufficiently ranked to be able to accept them so he'd say hey I'm coming in on Friday on Saturday and Sunday I'm mean, gonna give me this degree if you want to take it take it cost you a little bit of money and then he's off to the next city does this And one of the degrees was called the Royal Master's degree. That was um, it was uh, promulgated sometime in the early 1800s, around 1810. It was given. It was being taught as an independent degree, and there was a council of royal royal masters. This is not again. This is not a royal. This is not a York right system. This is not a Scottish right. This is an independent side degree that doesn't isn't officially recognized by anybody. And then um, and there was another degree called the Select Master that was down. It was taught in South Carolina prim- primarily. And uh, same thing. This is but this is an older degree They they can trace this one back to about 1788 roughly and they don't they don't know where the origins of either degree come from. And there was a guy named uh, Jeremy L. Cross, he was considered the best lecturer at the time, he noticed similarities between the Royal Master's degree and the Select Master's degree, and he started to put them together into one degree system called the Royal and Select Masters. And he started teaching them together. And what's interesting about this is, uh, and I can show you this later, is that every one of these major accomplishments that that Royal and Select Masters do, they, they correspond to a date that's in the Beale papers exactly. You know, it's like you know, the, the, the first council was created in 1817. The first papers, their first letters, written in 1817, and that kind of thing. I, I can and I can diagram that later. But anyway, so the Royal and select Masters now that they feel kind of emboldened. They 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 decided they they kind of a petition the Scottish Rite system and saying basically let us in, let us into the degrees. And then Scottish Rite said, well, we actually kind of already teach the what's in your degrees. In our system, we don't really need your system. And you know it seems to be doubled, so we don't we don't need it. Um, so that didn't sit well with the, with the the Royal Select Masters. And so they you know, throughout the 1820s, it didn't work. Throughout the 1830s, there was the anti anti masonic movement, so it kind of died on the vine for a while. Throughout the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s, they tried and, tried and tried and tried, and it just they got nowhere with these guys. And they realized that the only way they're going to be able to get anywhere is they have to create a governance system because the the way that the royalist like master's degrees were being bestowed state by state, council by council uh, was different. So they need to have some codification to be able to be officially recognized by either York right or or Scottish right. So throughout the 1870s, uh, led by a guy named Josiah H. Drummond, who was the attorney general for the state of Maine, he he was tasked by his own, uh, the Grand Lodge of, of, of Massachusetts, to help Bring sort of clarity and sort of governance to the degrees, and it took a decade. But by 1880, they had uh, they, they formed a general ground council, and the, the the royal select masters, are also called cryptic, right, because of the the, the degree systems. What's the, the the what the content of the degree has to do with the crypt? Um, was in, in independent in an independent now an independent pendant body. So you could, yeah, there are side degrees, but if you want those degrees, you now would have to go to a royal select master. Uh, you know, uh, certified counsel to get those degrees. And it was quickly then adapted and put into the York right system within the next decade or so. But, but for that time period, for that brief period for about 10 to 20 years, cryptic right was his own thing. It was unaffiliated. And, and it's, what's weird about uh, York right is that they have these, there's three systems within York right and they're all independent of each other. It's just York right sort of the governing overnance. You know, they, they don't, they can't really tell these, group these bodies what to do and you can take them out of out of step too so you can you can skip the york right degrees i mean you can skip the cryptic right degrees if you want and go from and go up to, and take the templar degrees without it so you know yeah,
0: that's like one of the things i've been told like you know you have all these you know different masonic systems and they have like especially what is it the all oh, the memphis and misery m1 where it's like you've got 99 or something different degrees and it's just like most people have never been through like even a you know, I mean, a 10th of these degrees, you know what I mean?
1: Right, exactly right, yeah. So that impetus impetus to become, uh, after fighting for about, almost, you know, we're talking like 60, 70 years for recognition. Um, Cryptic right declares its it's independence, and this is why I think the Declaration of Independence is used in the Beale paper, and but the, the interesting development of this is that when they put out their 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 they put out a sort of a circular at Masonic publications and saying hey, hey by the way world, cryptic right is now a thing. We have a governing council. If you you know this is what we're planning on doing and. 23 councils accepted it, state councils accepted it. Two did not, um, the state of Virginia and now West Virginia because at the time West Virginia and Virginia had abandoned all of its cryptic councils because they felt that they were not legitimate because of how they were bestowed in the state of Virginia. So that's to me is the second impetus as to why the bill papers are not only the Declaration of Independence but they're centered on Virginia and, and by default West Virginia is because they were the only And they still to this day are the only uh, councils that they don't exist any longer. They don't, they don't recognize the authority of the general ground council. So that is why I think it's, this is not just a a Masonic joke. This is actually what I believe I call it a a Masonic Trojan horse. Uh, The reason why the the, the quote unquote treasure is buried in Virginia. It's not just buried in Virginia. It's buried at the heart of Virginia. So if you were to take a, a compass and stick it and scribe it from the general location, about four miles from, from Bruford as it's, Says in the in the Beale Papers and run a circle around it, you will create it will create a a perfect circle. It'll hit the westernmost point of Virginia, the southeasternmost point of Virginia, and the northern tip and the, and the northern panhandle.
0: All right. Is there um, anything else you wanted to add about cryptic masonry?
1: Um. Only that as you study cryptic masonry, you realize that there's a real a real reason for them to do it. It's it's one thing to just you know like. You know, to oh, be a, another
0: another thing too because so with yeah. the york right there's also this sort of tradition of like the cipher system and that uh, as well if i'm not mistaken correct
1: um all of them have it actually um
0: I, if i'm not mistaken, it wasn't the york right a little more like obsessed with it though than some of the other ones
1: uh, to me scottish right seems to be more obsessed only because of okay. albert, uh, albert pike um he, he's a sort of infamous confederate general who was actually born in massachusetts but he you know he he was a kind of he was the grand the, the grand master of scottish right for for decades and he wrote quite a few books like morals and dogmas is one of his famous ones um these are books that are outside of masonry but they're sort of like primers to be able to help you understand the, the lessons so if you're in scottish Rite, you always have morals and dogma and you flip it open and he kind of tells you what's going on and what you, what you need to learn and it is it's a read Let me tell you it's it's, it's, it's chock full of, of uh, esoterica
0: oh yeah no I've actually read the entire what like 12,000 or uh, 102,000 yeah. yeah 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 no um, probably should reread it at some point I know a lot more about this stuff now than I did 10 years ago but uh yeah, yeah. it is uh, quite intimidating
1: <laughs> but yeah I mean this idea that you know that the you know, I, 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 people I think people really need to realize that that in, in the United States the Mason, Freemasonry is what it is today because of Americans and Canadians. But what attracted people to Masonry in the United States was really different than what attracted the Europeans. But in the, in the West, in the, in the you know Western North America, um, as the U.S. was moving west, as the states were opening up, and you'd have a town being built. You'd have, you know, invariably you'd have, you know, one fifth of the, of the males there being Freemasons, um, you know, about 20% of Americans, men at the, at the height of Freemasonry, we belong to, the, belong to the fraternity. And they would constitute a lodge there and it would just grow. And as the America went west, they would have these lodges that were affiliated with the lodges east and they'd kept moving and moving and moving before they knew it. You know, Masonry had millions and millions and millions of members, you know, and uh, that's not like that today. But you imagine every dealing. I mean, if you took up a newspaper and I I would suggest people go out on chroniclingamerica.org. And go into 19 it just put Freemasonry or masonry into in the search engine for anything and you'll it, you'll have a hundred million hits it's, it was just something you just it was front page news all the, the elections of Masonic officers and you know all the different events and the, you know and who was being elected from the town and who you know who's doing what and when the meetings of the mason was is a, a very big deal back in the 1880s 1890s it's much bigger than people think oh you know they think they Freemasonry. They think you know. They 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 think the, the skulls and bones, and they think that, you know hoods and shrouds and stuff. But it just wasn't like that. It was a men's club. It was a way to network. It was a way to you know get uh, business connections, and and uh, and some guys were really into it on an esoteric level, but most people seem to be into it just simply on 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 being able to make money. You know. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Things. No. I mean, it really was kind of an early form of networking. I mean, really for the vast majority of Americans, and. Um, I mean, also too. I think, uh, really. I mean, to kind of instill Americanism as well. Um, you know, my Absolutely. research partner Keith Allen Dennis always has a, a great saying about um the great you know Masonic conspiracy. Uh, I think it's not sorry, Keith, and I'm butchering this, but it's something to the effect of: if you want to see what the uh the great Masonic conspiracy was, I mean, just you know, walk out to any small town in America and look around, and you see it right there. You know, I mean, it was. Uh, to instill basic democracy, uh, sense of public response, civic responsibility, support for public education, um, you know, a lot of just common stuff like that, that, um, and again, I mean, you know, to some extent, I mean, this obviously seems very banal uh, in the 21st century, but again, you know, kind of going back, It's like the 18th century where a lot of, uh, especially higher education was dominated by uh, the Catholic Church and uh, a lot of institutions like that. I mean, you know, concept of public education was pretty radical. And I mean, you know, obviously public education does have its faults, but I mean... It's not like the um, the Vatican's version was that much better.
1: So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, schools were subscription schools, you know, it was uh, for the most part, you know, they wasn't there was no mandatory thing. And, you know, and grades were based upon what you knew, not how old you were. And you did, You didn't get matriculated just simply because you had, you know, and it was it was voluntary. If you wanted to be educated, you got educated. And uh, and you know a a lot of people you know equate Freemasonry with you know the Shriners and and making and raising money and being benevolent and you know having all these charities, but they really weren't. That was not their that was not their primary impetus. When they got pounded on during the eighteen thirties, they got absolutely trashed, and their membership dropped heavily because they were accused of being in league with Satan and they were, you know, the secret cabal that run the they ran the whole government and it was you know by them, for them, and, and to the detriment of everybody else. They had to reinvent themselves and they decided in the 1830s like if we come back to the United States and we need to have a, a better public face. We need to be more engaged with the public on a level that we're more open. So yes, we'll still be a secret society, but we have to be more engaged uh, on a civic level. And then, and that's why you do see like Masonic hospitals and you see, I mean, they've done fantastic work uh, in, in the last, you know, 180 years. Um, the amount of money that, that the Shriners raise and everything else is, it's a, it's a wonderful, unfortunate, it's an unfortunate thing that they had to go through that as, a, as an organization. But they, the, at the same time, it's been like, it was a great development and a great idea that they did do that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, you're referring, I think, to the Morgan affair um, with the 1820s, uh, which is a very, curious thing and all this of course um is it somewhat well known now um morgan's uh, wife uh, ended up becoming one of joseph smith's uh, plural yes, wives that's right uh, i'll tell you something else though about all of this that you and probably a lot of people are not aware of i trace back her genealogy and she's actually a member of the pendleton family uh, which were one of the founding uh, members of the society of cincinnatus as well <laughs> so um that woman had a lot of esoteric juju going on. Mason, Cincinnati, uh yeah. and Mormons, New York. man.
1: The, the city of the, the state of New York was was the hotbed for this stuff and people aren't recognizing. <laughs>
0: uh so yeah, that's it's just oh man, this is why I love this kind of history. I mean, it's already so weird without the um the embellishments that are so often placed on it.
1: Yeah. So if you don't mind, I'd like to talk about how, how I think the cipher is actually supposed to be understood. Sure. Not, sure.
0: Do you, do you want to get into like the numbers now, or did you have some other points in this?
1: Yeah, story? I think the numbers, well, here, I'll, I'll tell you, but here's an interesting number. Here's, here's something that told me there was something else going on. Um, and it was just simply this, that um, of course, the bill papers are, like I've said many times are 23 pages long but there's a lot of other 23s in this. Thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. Just to
0: interject. Yeah. There were three is, numbers that you really uh, focused on 23, 33. And 32. And I
1: think this is the, the point of it, that the papers is, is for us to focus on this numbers. And I'm like, well, why this number? Does it, it, it doesn't have any Masonic value. Well, it actually does. If you're telling the narrative, it doesn't have a, uh, you know, number 23 doesn't have any esoteric value per se, but what's interesting about it is so the papers are 23 pages long. The you know Thomas J Beale gives his um, uh, you know gives the, the, the ciphers to Robert Morris in 1822, but Robert Morris doesn't open up the case until 1845. Well, that's the span of 23 years. The, the unknown author gets the papers in 1862, and he doesn't publish them until 1885. Well, that's 23 years. Um, and if you if you compare the amount of mistakes, if you compare the, the Declaration of Independence that's as written per the one that's in the um, in the Beale Papers, there's 23, 23 extra commas I believe, and there's 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 just some really strange overt twenty threes. Like for instance, if you If you add the the amount of gold and you add it per digit, you get 23, you know? Um, So what does this mean? Um, Is it just random? Well, if you look on the Declaration of Independence, the actual declaration, and then you look at the bottom of it, there's all these signatures, there's 56 signatures. Well, the 23rd signature is Robert Morris. And of course, Robert Morris is the signer of the Declaration of Independence. So so that's like, hmm, that's weird. Um, you know, and, uh, so, but there's 56 signers. So the, 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 remainder is 33. Well, 33 is one of these numbers where the Freemasonry will never say there's anything connected to it, but I'm, I, I would beg to differ. But, um, but if you look at the name Robert Morris or Morris in the Beale papers, there's 33 instances of it. So what does that mean? Well, I believe that there's, this is an allusion to the third Robert Morris, which is there's, a, there was another Robert Morris in history, this guy's famous in Masonic circles because he was the creator of the Order of the Eastern Star, but his secondary claim to fame is that the Royal Select Masters got their nickname, Cryptic Right" from a guy named Robert Morris. So this this is the same guy. So you have three Robert Morrises. Um, and what's interesting, I said, the, the amount of gold, if, if you take the amount of gold that's in there and you get 23, well, the amount of silver, if you do the same thing, you get 33. So you get the same, you get the same uh, number system. You get 23 and 33, you, know, you get that same split, you know? Um, so I, I started looking at this going, this cannot be coincidence, this can't be. Um, somebody somebody wants you to see this so what is it so I started looking at the ciphers now this is the design guy in me I'm I'm in you know I'm an old guy so my when I took I had a design degree and my design degree for the most part this is pre-computer so what we did we learned it my what I learned was probably no different than what a typesetter would learn in the 1800s there's really no different because we didn't have computers so when I started looking at the ciphers and looking at the layout I said you know doesn't make any sense. If I was a typist and I was, you know, a guy guy typesetting something and I was given a a handwritten manuscript and it's just like today, if I was to go and go to Kinko's or a copy company, copy store and they said, you know, hey, it's going to cost you 20 cents a copy, you know, and, but I, you know, I, I can cull this down to four pages rather than 28 pages. You're going to go for the culling, right? It's going to save you money and typesetting is expensive. You got to pay for the service to do it. And you, and then you have as many pages as you can. So if you start looking at the the Beale paper ciphers, the way they're laid out, they're laid out to fool your eye. So if you just have ciphertext, you would just put number, space, number, space, number, space. And you just go from the left justified margin to the right until you ran out of space and you just keep going. But if you look at the Beale paper ciphers and if you look at the way they're laid out, they will be number, space, number, space, space, number, space, number, space, 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 number, space. They have all these additional spacers in there. And there's no reason to do that because there's no, it's just, again, it's supposed to be just, these numbers are supposed to just represent text. They're not supposed to represent, this has been laid out like a graph. And, and the only reason to add these spaces in there is to keep the numbers sacrosanct. but They need to stay on the line that they're on. And I'm going, why would you need to do that? There's no, there's no reason to do it. And you're going to cost the guy who you're doing the job for money. So why would you do this? And so I realized that the only reason to do this is it actually is a graph. And so what I did is I just simply took an Excel spreadsheet and I just put in the numbers as per the graph. And when I did this, this, this created a whole brand new way of looking at Beale paper. So it's not just text, it's actually positional locations on, an, on a spreadsheet. What I, what I mean by that is, remember when you're a kid and you got the, the coloring page and it had a, just a bunch of squares and each square had like a number to it and the number of two would mean you colored that square blue. You know, and you go find all the twos and you color them blue and it doesn't look like anything at first. And when then you start doing it, it's like, wait a second, this makes a design. Well, this is what I'm suggesting that the Beale papers do. This is so different than the average solve, which everybody thinks you have to solve the thing that there's actually is a, a, a key document for these things. And I'm saying, no, there is not. The Beale papers even say themselves that the Beale papers themselves are all you need to have to solve the papers. So it means everything is in the papers. You don't need another key document. And as sort of proof of this, um, in 19, I believe 1980, 1981, there was a guy named Dr. James Gallogly. He was a famous um, cryptographer, and he decided to take the Declaration of Independence as provided in the Beale papers and apply it to cipher number one and see what happens. And what he got was just gobbledygook, um, except for, you know, when he got to around, Two hundred characters. It just went. It looked like genetic code. It was like T A T A A G T T G G nothing. Right, and all of a sudden it just went A B C D E F G H I I J K L M M N O, and and people are baffled by this. Like, what? You know, it doesn't make any sense. But if See, you put that, if
0: I could just jump in though, that's yeah. really interesting because as far as twenty three goes, is Aren't there? what is it twenty three chromosomes? I think it is in the genetic code. Um, you know, yeah. take the basis for twenty three and Me and the, right. the name of the website and what yes. have you. Yes, there is. <laughs> yeah, 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 no. Um, well, I want to let you finish, but I wanted to return to twenty three before we move on to the triple numbers. Okay, so just keep that in mind because there's a few points about that I wanted to discuss with you.
1: Yeah. So, but what's really interesting about this, and 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 this is why this is where it starts to get visual. But imagine um, instead of so globally was looking at this as just a string of letters. If you're looking at just this thing requiring an actual key document to provide value to the number. Um, you don't need a graph. You just, you know, we you run out a page, you just keep going. But the graph is actually the positions of the numbers are important. And the reason and why I figured this thing out is it has to do with the fact that if you take a look at, um, so I I what, what, what could this ABCDE, what could it mean? If it just out of the blue, what does it mean? So I said, what if, and what I did is I just simply looked at the positional location of that string and looked at back at cipher number two, and basically lifted it and put it in where the string was located. And what was interesting about that is that um, there are other words that make no sense until you put this, the, the information from cipher number two into cipher number one, where the cipher is located, where the, where the string is located. And the reason why it's interesting is that on cipher number two, it, talk, it talks about the first deposit because the cipher number two is wider than Cypher number one. But if you take Cypher number and you take the string where the string is located and you pull it out and you put it in Cypher number one, it doesn't say the first deposit, it says the first D. And what's interesting about that is above this statement about two lines up, there's the word Dalet, D-A-L-L-E-T. And a Dalet is a D. Right, and it, Dalet by itself doesn't make any sense. It doesn't, particularly if you're looking at string, it, just, it doesn't look like a string, it just looks like gibberish. But in the context of the first D, the Dalet is the first D, it is the, it is the Delta of, of, of Phoenician. It is the Delta, the Dalet is the Hebrew word for D. So the first D um, and it's there, you know, and then you have um, another uh, thing that looks like, it looks like, well, it could be a coincidence is, it, 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 I think it says a fact. Um, and then but if you do it in if you do it in, in the layout that I have as per grid, you also get a second version of a fact running vertically, which doesn't show up unless you do it in grid form. You don't, you don't see it. So you have a fact running vertically, a fact running horizontally and you have the first D. And then um, you have it's interesting because the first D it, and, and the second cypher says the first D E and the E is you have to drop it and then it says posit. So this posit is also part of the string. So it says the first D posit a fact a fact. So positive fact the first D. What does that mean? You know, um, that is that is the key to cipher number one. So you know, and the first D is it, it, and the, I, there's there's um, there's there's actual Masonic writings that actually talk about the first D um, specifically. That they don't they, they don't uh, they don't just uh, uh, make it, uh, it's not kind of like it, it's exactly like it, you know, um, and uh, so it's, uh, so it, it has to be something, you know, and so I kept, and it's hard to visualize this, but the first, the first cipher has about 30 oh, something rows, I believe, and all of this action is, is happening about the 12th row up, so the bottom of this thing is, is, is blank for the most part. So I am like, well, there's gotta be something going on here. Why spend all the time and have two thirds of, gra- of this graph blank? So remembering the 23 again, I said, I, I tried that. There's like only 23, the, the number 23 is only used twice. So I was like, well, it can't be that. But What about, since this is all letters, what about the, the letter W? It's the 23rd letter of the alphabet. And I so I looked up them and I found out there was 23, 23, there's 23 Ws. So there's 23 Ws, the 23rd letter. And when I started to trace them out, a lot of them are sort of random, but they, there's clearly an oval being made in the bottom section. And it takes up most of the bottom section and it requires 10 of them to, to make this oval. It looks just like an egg. And then right at the top of this thing, there's a word that didn't pop up as a word. It says, it says 10. Um, it, it just looked like maybe it was part of the, of the gibberish, but makes sense now. You know, you have 10 W's. So I thought, OK, what is this? You know and it's and it's clearly this because when again it doesn't make any sense until you grid it when you grid it and you put the w's in it's clearly being it's clearly making a design uh, and you can find this in cypher number three as well it actually makes symmetrical designs where the you know where you take a letter and you 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 go f- outwards two spaces in either direction you make and you find the same letters and you go outwards six spaces then everything's symmetrical you know um so I said, wow, there's gotta be more here than this. So what other letters, what's the big granddaddy letter for, for a Freemasonry? And it's the letter G and you see this in, in Masonic symbols everywhere. It stands for geometry, stands for gnosis, stands for God. Um, it's in the American Freemasonry, there's G. So I started looking up G's and say, well, G, how many G's are there in this thing? And there's And there was, I believe that there were six or seven um, and I added up the. So, you know, uh, on a spreadsheet, you know, you have a row and column just in, just like you do, um, you know, just like you're doing an Excel spreadsheet. So, you know, it'd be row, row one, column 10 to so be one times 10 would equal 10, right? So I, I did this for all seven locations and you come up with a number 777 when you do this. So it's like, that cannot be coincidence. It's, this, this is proof that the graphic form of this thing, the, the layout is, is correct. You know, in case I didn't have any other previous knowledge of the fact that this thing is, the layout is, is, is key to this thing. So I went, wow, look at this. And so where these things were located, made a design and it made the constellation of Phoenix which is not a constellation that is, it's a Southern hemisphere constellation, but it it is a constellation that is common if you obviously go below the equator, but it's the constellation of Phoenix and its tail leads inside the egg where there's a number 1817. And 1817 is the year the cryptic rite was born. Well, in this case, it says, it suggests it's reborn because it's a Phoenix. Um, So this is where I begin to realize, Hmm, there's something going on. <laughs> there's something going on here. And it's clear that it's it, the, the, the key to of cipher number one is not there's there's no message. There's a visual message. There's not a textual message. All right, so there were a couple of
0: things I wanted to unpack here, but the big one also was a uh, 23, um, I'm sure regular listeners are aware of, uh, who, you know, heard the show time or two, I don't know if you are, but uh, I'm very into Discordianism, um, if uh, you're familiar with it, I'm sure you're uh, aware that it's uh, quite obsessed with the number 23. Um,
1: right, right, right. So yeah, I, I find this
0: really fascinating. Apparently, what were you going to say, Paul?
1: I think there's a movie starring Jim Carrey. Jim Jim Carrey, Carrey,
0: yeah, The 23 Enigma. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's uh, the 23 enigma actually started with uh, William S. Burroughs, who allegedly had started noticing a lot of strange events that would happen on the 23rd of the month, uh, and that right. kind of thing. And uh, gradually it was picked up by Robert Anton Wilson. And that was how it became a big thing in discordianism. And then from there it spread to like broader popular culture. But again, it's just, it, it's fascinating to me because Burroughs definitely seems like another guy who would have been very, interested in something like the beale papers um as well as possibly some of the members of uh, the discordian society is uh you know eventually this kind of thing uh grew into um alternate reality games which is actually what cicada 3301 and some of the uh, stuff we were talking about uh, before we start recording was spawned from yeah. so it's it's just so fascinating to me i mean a lot of this stuff almost sort of comes like full circle in a way but now um after reading your book it really has made me uh, start to wonder about the extent of the influence that bill papers might have had on uh, creating this 23 methos. Uh, have you ever given any kind of thought to that?
1: Well, it's only if they figured it out. I mean, to me, it's all this stuff sort of hidden in plain sight. It's just if you put two and two together. I think for the case of the Beale papers, the reason why there's 23 was used is, is simply as a reference to the fact that 23 uh, grand councils, state grand councils were the ratified, the existence of the general ground council and the ones that the holdouts were Virginia, West Virginia. And, and there's just there's pointing to that fact. I don't know if there's anything more esoteric than that, but yeah, you know, I don't, I don't think, I don't see anybody kind of coming anywhere near where I'm, where I'm going with this, which is that you know, there's, there's it's clearly Masonic. It's clearly there, whether you like it or not. There's designs that could be made in these in these ciphers, you know, and 23 is one of the key. You know, code it
0: does occur to me, though um, um, St. John's Eve, right? Uh, typically, the twenty third of June, right?
1: Yeah, it's the solstice. Yes, it's the solstice, the winter solstice, summer solstice. The St. John, St. St. John, Saint John the, the 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 evangelist, and St. John, the the Baptist. So
0: I guess I suppose that does, I mean, obviously St. John isn't quite as important to Masonry as it would be to something like, uh, you know, the sovereign orders of uh, St. John. or something. Well, they are.
1: I mean, it's a big day. Well, yeah. In, I maybe. mean,
0: it is, it is. But- I mean, if
1: you look at the symbol of uh, the, 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 the inner pump to the, the, the point within a circle, which is basically what is being made uh, where the field paper says the treasure is located is in the heart, the center of Virginia, um, that, that symbol is made. And when you look at a symbol of, uh, of, of, uh, of that it's typically flanked by the both Johns. And so you, you, could be on, you could be on to something here with the 23s for sure.
0: Yeah, no, that would be kind of like my assumption. Um, you know, my one uh, other friend who's going to obsessed with accordionism, we usually like meet up on 23s and how the first <laughs> one was like on St. John's Eve. So um, I'm born on
1: 23rd, so I'm, I'm in it. <laughs>
0: so yeah, 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 yeah. That's a uh, oh gosh, it's just so fascinating. If I, <laughs> it maybe grew out of just the sort of Masonic connection to St. John and the you know, Midsummer Eve. And then it's just gradually taken on this life of its own. Cause it, you know, again, it was also, um, you know, brought into some of the alternative versions of Thelema and the OTO by Kenneth Grant uh, in the 19th, uh, I think seventies or something too, where he started to become really obsessed with 23 after reading the cosmic trigger, ironically. So it's, you know, it's bled into a lot of, uh, contemporary ritual magic as well obviously chaos magic uh well,
1: yeah i mean if you read like you know the kabbalah or gematria you know the idea that uh, you know that numbers have value that letters have value based on numbers and you know there's 22 there's 22 letters in the hebrew alphabet so what does 23 represent you know what is, once you get past 22 what's the first you know what is that you know and like the 22 major arcana in the in the tarot you know, with 10 small, you know minor i you mean know, what what is 23 then you know, what does it represent? Yeah,
0: it's uh, it's kind of like one of the great enigmas of the
1: mysteries. A yeah, it's, it's kind of a weird thing. And I don't know if it's just completely kismet, you know, that the, the, the 23 that they used it. Uh, you know, it, it, to me, it's in the papers, it's simply, it's just a useful number because it's, it, it, again, it, it, it harkens back to the fact that 23 state councils ratified well, just, you know, just, it's it's.
0: I think it's interesting though to point out because it kind of plays into what you were talking about, you know, earlier with the um the ancients and the moderns or what have you, where it's just yeah. like you know they're running around like, oh yeah, yeah, you know these rituals are you know from like two thousand years ago that yeah. Solomon himself got, and it's like, no, dude, you made that up like five years ago, and it's exactly. kind of like almost the same thing with the twenty three enigma. It's like, well, we just. We kind of randomly picked it, you know, I mean, it, it's got the Midsummer Night's Eve connection. That'll be fine. And it works for our whole cipher system. And now it's, it's almost got a whole full-blown, it pretty much does have a full-blown cold following. It's, <laughs> it's fascinating. I can't help myself. <laughs> um, all right. Did you, did you have anything else you wanted to add about the triplet numbers?
1: Um, only that you can find them. I kept finding like, uh, um. You can find 666 and you can find two 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 and you can find one one, one and you can, you can find them rather easily. like you know, the, the for instance, the treasure the quote unquote treasure in the center of, of Virginia, if you measure out with, out from it um, to the corners of the, of the state, the southwest and east southeast and the north uh, tips, it's 222 miles in all three directions. You know, it's, so in two 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 times three is 666. Now it's not the number of the beast, it's the number of man. Um, so that's what Mason really believes in, and it's, again, it's about triplication. Uh, I mean, the three, things done in threes are, are a big deal to Freemasonry, but Freemasonry is, is it's a big deal to Freemasonry because it's a big deal to everybody else. And so Freemasonry is basically just acknowledging this. You know? So um, you know that's why there are three degrees to get into Masonry, but you know they're, they're, everything is done in the in the symbol in in the in the ritual itself. It's, there's th- everything's done in in threes, you know. Um, so, you know, there's, um, boy, I, I have to think about, um, other examples of two, 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 um, boy, uh, let me see if I can find him. Um, so there was a, I, I believe that the, 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 there was a guy, uh, well, a character in, 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 in history, you know, you've heard of the Bible code, right? Where you've got, you've got, um, um you know, Orthodox Jews who believe that the, 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 it was hard it's not too hard to
0: explain. Yeah, yeah, I know where you're I think there's multiple Bible codes, but yeah, like William Dudley Paley, for instance, the founder of the Silver Shirts, I think had his one interpretation of like codes in the Bible based on I don't know
1: measurements he got from the Great Pyramid of Giza or some crap like that. Yeah, I mean, Orthodox Jews believe that every of the 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, every one of them, that they but that they believe, and, I, and this is what Freemasons believe, is that God wouldn't talk to humans using a human invented language there's too much and big ambiguity it would be easy to be misunderstood so the one language that's universal to everything and everybody no matter what color you are what planet you are how many arms you are is math it's numbers so numbers are the universal language of god and so in hebrew is believed to be the it's just a phonetic value given to these numbers right so that's just you know 22 letters of this and so Um, So they believe that when you're reading the Old Testament, since you're in its original Hebrew, you're reading math. And the interesting thing about that is, you know, if you look at the Ten Commandments, each of the Ten Commandments has a Gematrian value. And it actually works mathematically. It's just the strangest thing, you know. So, like, you know, the sixth commandment is specifically dedicated to men and, and the ninth commandment is specifically dedicated to women. Although it's for everybody, it's it's more, you know, thou shalt not murder is something that it's sort of directed towards men than it is the women because men end up That's the one thing they got to worry about is their violence right number nine is basically don't don't bear false witness you know so it's it's you know don't don't gossip that's one of the that's that's the way the ancients sort of looked at this and everything is and and the numbers the math of all the of the the gematrian values of the math of the ten commandments work and so they for instance them the sham hefarosh they, they, they they there's 72 names of god they found this book this particular verse and that you know that by taking the every first letter and going through it, you can create 72 different words. Then no word is this is exactly the alike, right? And the 33rd word happens to say Jehovah, you know. Um <laughs> So, and it's just too, it's too strange. It's too bizarre for it not to be accidental. Somebody somebody did this a long time ago, you know, so it, it, this is why this has come from. So there was a, a big movement in the 1800s to try to do the same thing to the New Testament. And uh, and to see if you know, but of course, come up with a different. You're talking about to, applying the Kabbalah to it, right? Yeah, they're trying to. Yeah, Kabbalah. They're trying to find whether or not the, the the New Testament is encoded to be able to um, in, in, in Greek, basically. It was the New Testament encoded to tell when Jesus was going to return? So there were these a lot of these um, fundamentalist preachers, for the most part, um, devoting their entire careers towards sort of dissecting the New Testament to try to find these patterns. And um, they noticed a, a, a character in the Bible called Palmony. And Palmony was the God's number, or God's secret number. And, um, and, and, I, and I thought, God, this would be a, you know, because all the Masonic lodges are named, you know, all, all sorts of certain names that are basically tif- typical Freemasons. And I thought, God, there's got to be a lot of Palmony lodges. God's secret number, that'd be like the perfect name. And I found there's actually only one lodge with that name, the Palmony Lodge in New York City, not New York City, but the state of New York. And the guy who was the grandmaster of the Palmony Lodge was this guy named George Osgoodby, who was the second grandmaster of cryptic right. And he was in charge of cryptic right when the Beale papers were being written. So I, I, I'm convinced he had something to do with this.
0: <laughs> All right. Was there anything else you wanted to add about how the Law applies to the ciphers?
1: Um, only that that is, I mean, that's numbers. I mean, when people think, uh, like, you know, that number, you can't look at the number in this, in this manner. I say, well, yeah, you can. I mean, this is the way these Kabbalistic techniques are, are sort of part and parcel with, with Freemasonry. This is the way Masonry is sort of built upon Kabbalah. I mean, I, I could read you, uh, a, a, a couple of quotes from, uh, um, you know, from, from Masonry itself. And, you know, you see what I mean? It's just, uh, um, you know, I'll read you this is from Albert Pike. The Kabbalah or Kabbalah embodied a noble philosophy, pure, not mysterious, but symbolic. It taught the doctrine of the unity of God, the art of knowing and explaining the essence and operations of the supreme being of spiritual features by the arrangement of the alphabet and the combination of numbers, the inversions of letter and writing and the concealed meanings which they claim to discover therein. The Kabbalah is the key of the occult sciences and the Gnostics were born of the Kabbalists. So this is what, this is, this is written from the grand master of, of, of Scottish Rite Masonry. Um, you know, and and this, is, this is just sort of part parcel with Freemasonry. So when people suggest, suggest oh, you, you can't pull, this is just ridiculous. You can't pull this stuff out of the, of the Beale papers. It's like, well, if it's a Masonic document, it's, this is why you see all these numbers. This is, this is exactly what you would expect from a Masonic document.
0: All right, so how about the tarot? Are there? You already kind of suggested a little bit, I think, earlier that there were references in the ciphers. Can you elaborate on that now?
1: Well, yeah. So, knowing finding what I found out in cipher number one, using cipher number two, I decided to do exactly the same thing to cipher number three, and it it completely, like the other one, completely cre- completely creates gobbledygook. It just doesn't have it. It doesn't have the strings that were found by Galogly in cipher number one. It doesn't create anything, except for one really obvious word in the center of the of the cipher which is the word tarot or in t-a-r-o-t right in the center i said well that could that could be coincidence but uh, it seems kind of odd and there was one other thing i noticed is that if you look at this the layout of this thing knowing this guy put spaces the the guy who did the printing did put these spaces out if if you look at cipher number three um the very last line has what I call an orphan. It's a it's a single number on the line, and 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 when you work in graphic arts, that is like the plague. You know, you would back that space back up, and you would take spaces out to make sure that that thing was sucked back up into the into the greater design. You wouldn't have a, a single dangling number. So that's kind of odd, you know. So. Um, I started to count the numbers and realized that that number that was there was also the amount of numbers that were in the cipher. And I realized, okay, that that thing's purposeful. So I found the word tarot. And I also found that if I put the stuff in a grid that there was also a, a, a single orphan on the far right of the margin. So I said, well, this is actually making a triangle. And it is, it's a perfect triangle with tarot in the middle. So well, what does this mean? Because tarot at the time of the papers in 1885, the tarot card, the tarot deck was not a thing, really. It was a thing in Europe, but it wasn't a Masonic thing. Um, it was, they, they were not, they, there was the, the, the weight deck, you know the, the, W-A-I-T-E, you know, the I think his name is Albert Waite, um, the tarot, Masonic tarot deck that didn't exist in 1885. So what are we looking at here? So um, again, going back to uh, Albert Pike, and he mentions tarot a lot. He says, basically, tarot is just another name for the same thing. It's the same it's, it's this another reference to the same Godhead, you know, that we're talking about um, numbers, we're talking about Gematria and Kabbalah. And um, so I started finding other numbers, though, around tarot. I started finding um, uh, the word OCT, 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 many, many oct, oct is the 10th, October, 10th month, so I find 10, 10, 10. And I'm, I'm I'm finding lots of, of um, you know the tenth. If you go to the tenth card of the of uh, of tarot, you find it's the wheel of life. And in, in the wheel of life, it says tarot. And um, uh, it's kind of a it's kind of a it's it's so it's not necessarily a reference to the tarot card. It's more a reference to tarot, the concept of tarot, which is if, if, if that makes any sense. Um, which is that. Um, like for instance, uh, I'll read you something from um, from uh, uh, from uh, what's this guy's name? Elieus El- 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 Levi. Um, Central to the Western Kabbalah is the glyph otschim or the Tree of Life. The hierarchy of ten spheres or Sephiroth, connected by twenty-two paths. The tree is built from ten Sephiroths and twenty-two paths. The, tra- the Tarot, from ten numbered cards in each minor arcana suits and twenty-two cards in the major arcana. Basically, it's just another. V- that's an easy, a complicated way of saying that the Tarot is a is a a restatement of the Kabbalah, or the or the Hebrew alphabet of twenty two letters, and so I, I, I found this in the third cipher, um, you know, by itself, and I said, well, why is this so strange? Um, so what does this mean? And uh, when I found that, when I found uh, the uh, the triangle, I found okay, what is this? What does this refer to? So I, I but the, the third cipher is hard to explain. <laughs> <laughs> of all those hybrids, it's hard to explain. Um, and what it, it basically, again, it refers back to the, the first D this idea of a, of a Dalit or a triangle. And, and sure enough, I found a, a perfectly symmetrical five, uh, it takes five triangles to uh, five uh, uh, positions to make this but it's an open-sided triangle. It's a triangle with two sides and one missing triangle and one missing side. And that is the symbol of cryptic right which is the broken triangle
0: yeah it's fascinating um another uh, interesting point about the tarot deck and the 22 there is um that's also i believe not including the full uh which could be uh construed as either the zero card or the 23rd card so <laughs>
1: Yeah, I kept finding references to 10, 10, 10, 10 over and over again, I found um, trying to, I'm trying to look at my own work here, because it's been a while since I've looked at that, but mainly that they're just, there's uh, references 10, 10, 10 being the 10th letter of the alphabet, and then, uh, and then when you start looking for that letter in the, in the, in the cipher, you start finding additional, uh, you know, encodings, and uh,
0: well, the connection with the fool is interesting as well, potentially with 23. I mean, you know, even in terms of masonry, obviously there's the um, kind of connection, especially in the Shriners tradition and then the, um, the Royal order of jesters and so forth. But I mean, obviously it turns up in Sufism and a lot of other uh, traditions, you know, the kind of uh, concept of the fool or uh, the jester, all that good stuff. Um Kind of another curious aspect uh, that could potentially be linked to 23. so just to kind of throw that out there well it's weird because like the
1: third cipher said so it's the you know, this is the cipher that's for the beneficiaries of of, of the treasure so the, you know it's it's the assumption would be that it's always been ignored the third cipher because it's assumed to be the people whose names and addresses that are on that have been long dead but The the actual beneficiaries are are other Freemasons. This is the point of this is it's, you know, it's, it's, this is a, a message by Freemasons for other Freemasons. And so they, you know, it's can, can you figure this out? Um, and when you do figure it out the, 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 the riches that you're being given are Masonic in origin, they were just, you, you get the message, you get the, the, the analogy is there, which is the kind of the point of this. And so, and, and again, I do think this is a Masonic Trojan horse. They, the free, cryptic right was uh, the Grand Council, the general Grand Council of cryptic right was unable to convince West Virginia and, and, and its sister state by default because it's when they split into two states, um, West Virginia, to accept the, the legitimacy of their general ground council, so they buried this, uh, this metaphorical uh, uh, treasure in the heart of it, planting it, planting it. Whether they can do it physically or not, it's like, you know, we're, we're going to plant our, our 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 authority basically in the center of your uh, the center of your states, and uh, you know, and by you accepting this and printing this paper, you, it's it's now there. Um, you know, hopefully you'll recognize it, and and then hopefully there's something in this paper you recognize the power of the, of the general Grand Council, or, you know, that we, you know, we are legitimate, you know, and we have a legitimate source and we, we do, we, we do deserve to be recognized and the authority recognized. And so that, that that's what I think is the, the point of the of the Peel papers.
0: All right. Um, so take us through, I kind of think before you go through the, uh, the main uh, individuals you think who were behind it, it might be useful too to also kind of, uh, give a little context with the civil war and what have you, because the, um, the bill papers came out, I believe like a little after the civil war. Correct. Right.
1: Yeah, they did. They came out, um, uh, well, 1885, The civil war was open over 20 years before that. Um, so it's, um, it's in relationship to the Civil War, so cryptic right was, was always handed these sort of olive branches, because it refused to accept the authority from Scottish right. It just it, it, Scottish right wanted to basically teach these cryptic degrees in its own councils, and, say, and then cryptic said, no, you know, you, you can't do that, we're not letting you do that, and they were doing it anyways. And so they they offered this thing called the Mississippi Plan, which is basically you know, cryptic right. You know, in order for you guys to, to survive, because they there was a belief that during the Civil War, because everything went kind of dark, that the that cryptic right was which had a very small membership nationwide um, was going to just go extinct. And so after the Civil War, they decided you know, like let's let's see if we can't keep cryptic right going by we think this thing called the Mississippi Plan, which is cryptic right dissolve your local councils, dissolve your state councils, and and, and basically merge with the, you know, with with the Scottish Rite councils and and, and call it a day. And then all it did was piss piss them off. And they they got more determined than ever. So by the time 1870 rolled down, just five years after the end of the Civil War, they were like, no, you know, we're going to do the exact opposite. We're going to form a general ground council, like it or not. It's going to take some years to do it because we have to do it legally within Masonic circles. We have to prove a lot of stuff, but we're going to do it, and by 1880, they had that that formed. And so, what I what I'm suggesting is what I believe happened is in sort of celebration of this long-fought 60-plus year um, fight for independence, that they, like, so the esoteric members of, of this of the General ground Council, some of the, the high-ranking officials and officers of the, of the of these councils got together and said, "Look, why don't we come up with some ingenious ways to sort of um, prove." You know, um, or, you know, just, let's just let's make some puzzles. You know, we, we, are, we are cryptic, right, after all. We're we, we are cryptic, you know, we're hidden. So let's do some puzzles. And this is why you see this explosion. You see the Kensington runestone. You see the faistos disc. You see um, the Beale paper. You see the Los Lunas Decalogue. You see the Bat Creek cave stone. You see um, the, the, the Puteau stone. You see the Heavner runestone. You see uh, all the stuff just explodes in this very short, short period of time and then it just dies away because that the initial group that was involved with the General Grand Council dies off and then, and then you don't see anything. I mean, you don't, people aren't finding these things anymore. If they do, I think they, they found the, the Spirit Pond runestones in 1971, I'm convinced that that's made by the same guys who made the Kensington runestone, and that and this is the one artifact that actually survived well into the future, but it was also made in that same time period.
0: All right, so do you want to take us through the uh, culprits now that you see behind uh, the Beale papers?
1: Yeah, so I think there's a certain skill set that I don't think any one person could have done all of this, or and, and any one person could have done virtually any of these things. Um, and this would be this would be including the Kensington Ruins or anything like that. There, there's a certain skill set to be able to locate, to be familiar with maps, to be having to even have access to maps, to be able to, to, you know, to be able to draw and locate geographically on maps where things are, to be able to write the copy, to be able to do all this stuff. There there were certain things, certain skill sets that they found. And so I think these guys when they would meet, they um, they would say, okay, what's your idea? And then like, ah, that's a great idea. Let's okay, what do we need to do to do this? And so my 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 principal uh, suspects for this are Three of the officers for the first and second and third general grand counsel, which was a guy named George M. Osgoodby from New York, uh, George W. Cooley from Minnesota, and potentially William Austin. I'm not convinced of Austin's um, connection 100%, but um, he seems to be in the right place at the right time and have the right, um, the right contacts. He was an older Mason. He was actually the highest ranking as far as age. Cryptic Wright Mason at the time alive, but he was involved with all of the machinations that were going on behind the scenes. Now, the reason why I think these guys are who they are is because uh, um, of of their accomplishments, their personal accomplishments. Uh, George Osgoodby, was a very accomplished guy, huge guy too. He's about six foot six, big, big dude, um, born in 1837. He's like uh, Cooley was the same way as Cooley's, both of Cooley's parents were from England, but Osgoodby's uh, mother was American. His father was English. He was from a town called, a small town called Nunda in upstate New York. Um, and he just 11 miles South of Mount Morris, which is named after Robert Morris and uh, kind of, which is interesting. Um, he, um, he, his older brother was a stenographer and a printer, so he had full access to printing. Uh, he knew how pr- things were printed and he could typeset if he needed to. He was exposed to how, uh, his, in fact, his brother actually wrote books on how to print. So um, and he, had, you know, he was fully, fully versed in printing and typography. He was a graduate of Albany Law School in the 1850s. He practiced law. He, um, uh, he was very, very devoted during the Civil War to the, the Loyalty League and Abraham Lincoln. Um, He was hugely active in Freemasonry. He was actually the Grand Master of Scottish Rite and the Grand Master of Cryptic Rite for the state of New York. He was the second General Grand Master uh, and he was nominated as such at Denver, Colorado in 1883. Um, He was also the Grand Master of like the aforementioned Palmony Lodge in 1882. It's the only lodge in the world that I could find that was named after God's wonderful numberer. And at the time, the Beale papers released, he was the highest ranking Cryptic Mason in the country. And he was recognized nationally for his prodigious writing abilities, and uh, I mean, I, I have comment after comment in my book that basically just uh, basically compliments his writing, you know, um, you know, over and over from some of the highest ranking Masons nationally, um, that this guy was, you know, basically set up for, uh, to be the to be the, the guy who actually wrote the text of the of the of the of the, of the, you know, the Beale Papers, the the actual narrative. Um, the second guy, who I believe is involved with, is a guy named George W. Cooley. Cooley was a he was the number four uh, general grand master for um, uh, cryptic. Right, he was also his. He was born in 1845 in New York as well. Um, he had, he he was actually went to um, college and then he graduated at age 19, and um, he went to the Cooper Institute in New York City and and was basically became a. Um, a, a, a surveyor and he he was a really accomplished at surveying. I mean, he, he attained the highest ranks in the state of Minnesota as in surveying. And he was a very accomplished um, person in making round maps, which would be very useful in making a round circular round map around uh, Virginia. You know, he had that, skill set to be able to locate where that would be. Um, he had uh, a penchant for doing cryptograms. He was known nationally in cryptic circles for being the, the one of the top cryptogram, cryptographic writers. In, in, you know, he actually enciphered an entire, uh, all, the, the, all, all the rituals for cryptic right in a, in, a, in a cipher itself. So he, he um, certainly was, could have been involved in this as well, at least at a, at a secondary level. And the third guy who I, I believe this William S. Austin, um, I believe he was involved only because he, he had a connection to a guy who I, we haven't really talked about Robert Morris too much, but Robert Morris, the, who I told you earlier, was the third Robert Morris, the, the Masonic Robert Morris, who uh, who's the founder of the Order of the Eastern Star, which is a female, a woman's Masonic organization. He's also the guy who termed the coin, coined the term cryptic right, but he also wrote a book called Written Mnemonics, now, if you actually look at written mnemonics, you can find copies of at least some of the pages they had online. Written, written mnemonics, if you look at them, they look like the Beale papers graphs. They look exactly like it. And he was criticized heavily for writing this book because it was believed to be like, what are you doing? You know, and he made it for public purchase and anybody could buy it. And this is freaked out the Mason, this Masonic uh, Brethren, he's like, "What are you doing?" I said, "I no one's going to be able to crack this." But he actually gave the, the cipher key and the cipher, and you know, if you could, if you could figure this out, uh, good luck. And no one, I don't, think anybody's ever figured it out. Um, I think it's it itself is its unknown cipher. But you know, he's proof that you could do an un, a cipher text, give it to the public, and no one would understand that it actually was Masonic. Um, but he also was a, a guy who uh, he, in, in, his studies, he was, tr- uh, Robert Morris, the, the, the Mason was trying to figure out the true origins of Freemasonry. He was trying to write a, an accurate history of it. And he went around and uh, he visited a, about a thousand lodges in his life and he went around and around and around and he, and he basically created, um, a, um, sort of a very conservative, uh, group of Masons who, um who uh, they called the Masonic Conservators. And they were, um, they were just strict, strict, strict Mason. They wanted, they wanted to get rid of a lot of the extraneous rituals and so like that. And they were absolutely hated, absolutely hated. But this guy, William Austin was a really good friend of Morris, Robert Morris. And so I think his involvement may have been in, in that regard. He knew Robert Morris personally. He was, uh, you know, uh, went back there, especially roughly almost the same age. And, uh, and, and and Austin was also a very well-known Mason. He was the, he was the head of uh, cryptic right for the state of Indiana. So these are the three guys who I have pegged as the, the likely you know, co-writers of the Beale papers. Also, I, I should also mention that George Osgoodby, this is a sort of an interesting thing. When, when the General Grand Council was formed for cryptic right, um, they knew that they had a sort of a missionary... Uh, thing they had to do. They had to go and sort of preach the gospel to the state councils and get people to agree. George Osgoodby, who was who's the guy who I think actually did all the it was his brainchild and he was the guy who came up with the narrative. He was tasked with with spreading spreading the gospel to West Virginia and Virginia. There's one of his one of his his just his juris jurisdiction and he realized he was up he was in for it. There was no way He's going to convince the Virginia and West Virginia and the reason why this has, has West Virginia and Virginia have are unique and not accepting it is they they believe that the cryptic degrees were brought into Virginia by a guy who did not have the authority to do so. Every other city every other state council believes that they do but they in Virginia they believe that the guy who came into Virginia to give these create these councils did so without any authority. And so that, that was, that's the, the basis for Virginia's non-acceptance of, of, of the general grand council cryptic right. Well, Osgoodby was basically t- tasked with trying to convince him otherwise. And so I think he basically ran up against a buzzsaw. He could not do it. And I think that the Beale papers were at his, sort of his answer to, to con- try to con- convert Virginia and West Virginia, but just con- doing it through the back door through a Masonic Trojan horse.
0: All right, Paul, let's get into a little bit of the uh, more speculative questions I had here. So, um, as a bonus here before we sign out so um <laughs> uh as you know it seems incredible to outsiders that they would go to such lengths i mean for all these kinds of enigmas and indeed that's uh not exact there's not exactly an easy precedent uh, in american freemasonry for this kind of hoax at least that uh yeah is obvious to a lot of people but there is uh the russia fervor that broke out in the early 17th century so the original Rasha Crucians never existed. Uh, the manifestos were described as a uh, ludibrium, I believe is how it's pronounced, or a quote-unquote serious joke by the uh, individual Andreas, uh, Jothan, Johanna Andreas, I believe who uh, was most likely the author, principal author of the manifestos. Obviously, there are some fundamental differences between Masons and Crusians. Their uh, relationship is ambiguous, to put it mildly. But the manifestos are a testament to this kind of elaborate pranks and gamemanship that can be played in these mystical circles. And also frankly, the serious implications of them, too. Uh, I mean, one could argue that the Crusian fervor was a big part of uh, ultimately spreading uh, the Masonic Lodges so widely in the 18th century. So do you see the Beale Papers possibly deriving some inspiration from those manifestos?
1: I I do, probably indirectly, but I do. I mean, Freemasonry has, you know, Rose Cross, particularly Scottish, right, it has Rose Cross degrees, at least two of them. Rose Cross, you know, Rosicrucian, Rose Cross degrees in them. And there's no question that that Freemasonry was in, is influenced by that um and there are i don't think this is a joke as much as it's it's it is what it isn't you know what i mean it's it's it's, it's fake well, you know?
0: i should kind of point out that's kind of the same thing with the you know the russia manifestos, manifesto is the original one, right. because on the one hand it's like they are a joke but then on the other hand they are kind of calling for sort of um almost a mystical kind of reformation within the Vatican or something like that so I mean there right. is sort of yeah. a, there is actually a serious a- purpose that's yeah. sort of why they're so fascinating because I mean it's partly a joke but it is also sort of serious I guess that's sort of how I that's why I like this sort of serious joke yeah. label that they have I mean it is right. sort of humorous but it's not at the same time
1: Yeah, it's very Robin Anton Wilson for sure. But you know, like you know, uh, you know, like Mozart wrote the I mean, the Magic Flute. The Magic Flute is a very, very famous opera. It's one hundred percent Masonic, and it went right over the heads of everybody who was not a Mason. But I mean, it's it's overtly Masonic, and you know, um, and it's right in your face, you know. And every bit of that is in the Beale Papers. You know, there's this, there's the kingdom of the gold. There's the, there's the prince, then he's got the kingdom of sun and then, and then the gold and warmth and love and good. And then there's the kingdom of night, you know, and, and then the moon and silver. And so you've got gold and you got silver. you got gold treasure, you got silver treasure in the Beale Paper. You, they they war over each other. The magic flute is the, what brings in the, the, the Masonic teachings. You know, the dragon is, of course, the, the, the people who don't understand the teachings of, and, you know, and then misconstrue what they actually mean. You know, that this is, it's open and it's opening in your face and yet it's not, you know. Um, so all of this for sure. I mean, I don't know, you know, no one exactly knows exactly why or when or who, you know, what the Russicrucians and, 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 and a lot of the, there's a lot of other movements are going on at the same time. And it all kind of happens all at the same time, roughly. And, uh, it, and it absolutely influenced the, 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 the lodges for sure. There's no question about it.
0: All right, so one of the major bombshells that you draw up at the end of the book uh, is quite compelling. You make an argument that American cryptic masons may have had a connection to the Illuminati. Yes, kids, the Bavarian Illuminati. Uh, Can you give us a
1: rundown of why you think this is possible, Paul? Well, I don't know if it's possible. I'm just suggesting that the authors either may have wanted us to think it was possible. And that is the joke. They wanted us to think that, or actually they really did think it and they were trying to make us show why, but, but there's even, even if we say that there's no evidence of it. So I I say, I got to, I have to investigate this because this is the weirdest thing. So it going back to what I was saying earlier about the, the cipher number one and finding the, the, constellation of Phoenix. And it's clearly the constellation of Phoenix. I mean, if you look at a constellation page and you put it up next to the design that's found in cipher number one, using the letters G again, which makes the, the, the sum of those letters from their positional values makes 777. Um, and it emanates from an egg with, this, with the birth date of 1817. So a Phoenix isn't just a bird, it's a bird that's dies and reborn. So, okay, it dies and reborn. So that means that suggests that cryptic, right? Came from something else or something older. So, what died out prior to 1817? Not much masonically. Not much. Um, you could say the right of strict observance, but the fact is that right of strict observance kind of morphed into what is today Swedish right, and the remnants of that also morphed into Scottish right. So, but but they're saying so. What else? What else died? The only other thing that I could think of that didn't it was is the Bavarian Illuminati. So I like, well. Uh, is that is that insane is that completely nuts i mean i does not make any sense to me you know so because there's no um, there's there's no real what you find in the in the in the degrees of royal and select master and there's a third they call it the most super excellent master and in, in, uh, in cryptic right is the content is just completely different than what you find in in the Illuminati but 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 so what I mean that that ultimately is okay great but that maybe there is something embedded in the in the degrees I don't know um I'm, I'm sure anybody who has a royal psych like master degree anybody's involved in cryptic right listening this probably is just laughing their heads off but I'm just saying I don't necessarily believe any of it all I'm saying is that the clues in the Beale paper suggest this there's it's not a bird that's being born it's a phoenix that's being reborn now i know there's it could it could potentially mean that you're individually you're reborn because the whole point of 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 this the idea of the second temple is that you know you you to be able to get the treasure you need to you need to descend into into and you need to die and to be reborn so maybe that's what it is but it has the date 1817 so it has a date to it so it's like well to me, it's referring to the organization and not to the individual. So what is it? So I started looking at the, at the Illuminati and the, you know, they, they enjoy a reput- reput- uh, reputation that's just way beyond what they, what they earned. They didn't, they didn't, they, aren't what people think they are. I think, and, 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 in some ways they are, uh, I, I think people don't understand what they are. All the Illuminati basically were, was that, um, um, the guy Adam Weishaupt, which people think may have been a sort of a weird, corrupted name, because Adam being the first human, and Weishaupt in German means white skin. So the Adam, the first white, the first white man, the first man. You know, that's the that's what they think that that name. It may be a fake name, but he designed a system, basically in in not necessarily in um, conflict with Freemasonry, but his view of Masonry is that he liked it so much. He believed that the, that the, that the, that the spirit of it, that the teachings of it shouldn't be confined to the lodge. He believed that everybody should have it. Why should it be a secret? Everybody should know about it. You know? And rather than not talk about politics, we should be totally talking about politics. Politics should be number one. We should use the, the teachings of Freemasonry to change the world. And a lot of his teachings, by today's standards, we have, I would consider it almost communistic or socialistic. He he really wanted, to, you know, he wanted to this sort of this big state essentially to kind of run. It was all about rationalism and you know and this idea of a, of a, you know the the one kind of one state religion, but the, but no name for it at the same time, you know, sort of a rationalism, a god, you know, like the godhead that they have in in, in Freemasonry, which is the grand architect, the acknowledgement of the grand architect, and you can call it whatever you want, but the, the, we need to, you know, that life should be run with math, we could solve, we could solve world hunger, we could solve everything, we could solve all the world's problems. So, and he realized he wasn't going to get very far Trying to recruit people just on this, and so he decided he would do. This is why the Illuminati get the, the, the rep that they get. He was going to do a lodge within a lodge. He was going to try to convert people by joining their lodge and getting having people that were Illuminati and join their lodge and then sort of illuminize them, make them aware of the, of the of the of the goals of this. And and they were actually quite successful in Germany, south you know in Bavaria, in Hesse and Hanau and they I know, and they um and they started to kind of freak everybody out, including the, the Catholic church and other Freemasons. And, and he started to convert people that were vice uh, started to convert people that were pretty highly ranked, the nobles and, you know, officials and stuff. And so it started to cause a little bit of, of a panic. And it's interesting too, that, that, that the, the Illuminati were started in 1776, the same year the United States. But um, I think that's just an aside, but, um, but he, he basically, after a, a couple years of, of making a big, pretty big splash, starts getting attacked by the, the by high-ranking officials, and they basically ban him on um, pain of death. And so he he basically leaves it to a second in command, and um, and uh, and eventually the, the the entire movement gets banned essentially in Germany, and that moves over to France, where it's run by a German named uh, Boda. And Boda runs it until he dies. And then it's given to a guy named Reinhold, who in Reinhold was sort of a professional lecturer and he is making a fortune doing that. And he doesn't really care about the, the organization. He sort of lets it die on the vine. And that is basically the, the Illuminati go extinct by the early 1790s. Um, and that's, that's what we know of the Illuminati. Of course, the, everybody starts to think that, well, they went underground and they, you know, and they. They still basically are the puppet masters, and they pull the string of everybody, and that's then that's what everybody has thought ever since. And so, and that and that that reasoning came back came into existence due to two books. A guy named um, uh, Father Barul, a French priest who fled fled during the French Revolution, who blamed large elements of the French Revolution on the Illuminati said that they went and they were behind the scenes and they were, wiped, they, they were one of the causes for the uh, for, um, for revolution. And there was a guy named Robinson, an American preacher who was convinced after reading Barul's book that anytime you saw sort of liberalism in in American politics or, or in the Masonic lodges, it was due to those lodges being illuminized, just like you saw in Europe. So there was his, his implication was that there were American Masonic lodges that were infiltrated by Illuminati and it caused an absolute panic in the Northeast for for a couple of years. And uh, so from that point on, they started, uh, he was getting lambasted basted. Um, Robinson in the newspapers by Freemasons like you everything you just pointed out about Freemasons you could apply to Quakers you know and Quakers you know do you you're suggesting Quakers have been infiltrated because Quakers believe all the same stuff you know and so it sort of in frustration he started writing to the um, uh, to Freemasons in Virginia because he he accused of this is interesting too this <laughs> he accused of the some of the of the primary lodges of being aluminized to all exist in Virginia. And, um, and all emanating from a, a, a lodge called the La Sagasse, which means the wisdom, the wisdom lodge. And and so he wrote to the French. I mean, what to the, the the Grand Master of of the of, of Freemasonry in the state of Virginia for the Scottish Rite and asked him, well, you know, what's going on here? He said, well, yeah, that's a French Rite of Perfection lodge that has changed its name now. They're just the they, we call them the French Lodge, but it's it's wisdom lodge. You know, it's in Portsmouth, Virginia. They're not Illuminati. They're not anything you're talking about. So. Um, and so that kind of all went, died, kind of, all kind of died down. So it's like, well, okay, well, I'm not seeing any connection to the Illuminati. But so so I, I started doing more research and I, I, I read a book called The Perfectibilists. And I they, and they found out that we're in, there was indeed at least one full-blown high-ranking Illuminati who did come to the United States. He was he was named called Gaspar Schweitzer. He was a Swiss, French-Swiss guy involved in the French Revolution, heavily involved in the French Revolution, who... who uh, yeah, he had illuminized a lot of lodges and he did come to the United States on the behest of the French government um, to sell uh, furniture and, and accoutrements of, of the, the nobles that the French Revolution had murdered. They'd gone to these estates and taken all their furniture and all their wares and China stuff. And they wanted to see if they could find an American market for all this stuff. So he was a go-between um, between the between the, you know, the French government and American merchants. And so he contacted, uh, I believe, 10 or 11 Merchants um, in the United States, uh, all throughout the Eastern Seaboard, and they were t- some of the top um, import-export merchants in the United States. And the interesting thing about this is one of the guys who he contacted in in South Carolina uh, was involved in, in in fact involved in the in the creation of some of the first. Um, select master degree in South Carolina, Uh, the Hay and the Hay family and Moses Hayes. And these guys were some of the first people uh, 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 tapped to sort of spread the Freemasonry in the states of South Carolina. So it's, there is a connection, but it's tenuous. And I don't, I just kind of just don't get it. I don't, so I'm not making the claim that that, that there is a connection, but there is a connection. And I I, I don't see it philosophically, but I do see it you can make the case that there is a sort of a, a connection between, free, between sort of the survivors of the Illuminati and the people who inherited at least a, the Select Master's degree of, of, of Royal Select Master's.
0: All right, before we sign off for good, I wanted to ask you about possible references to the Society of Cincinnati and Bill, as uh, regular readers of this, or listeners rather. Sorry, I'm still always in kind of the mindset of being a blogger. As regular <laughs> listeners of this podcast are aware, I've been quite obsessed with the Society lately. And of course, uh, Robert Morris, the first Robert Morris, the center of the Declaration of Independence, was uh, one of the, uh, I believe, founders, at least the leading figure in the early Society of Cincinnati. Um, And the Society of Cincinnati was also undergoing its own revival around the timeframe, the bail papers appeared. And another interesting thing about this, I'll point out to kind of give the listeners a sneak preview of some of the stuff I'm going to get on the Patreon with the Society of Cincinnati. Um, The Illuminati scare that Paul uh, was referring to is really interesting in this context because um, the Society of Cincinnati had had members uh, in both the Federalist and the Democratic-Republican camp, but it was principally a Federalist group, uh, with a few exceptions, like, uh, what's his name, and uh, uh, the guy who shot, I don't know, Alexander Hamilton, Burke, uh, Eric, yeah. yeah, yeah, he was a Democratic, rep- Burr, yeah, he was a Democratic-Republican who was- Also a awesome. New York. Yes, 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 yes. So, um, yeah. But the thing that's interesting is that, um, Jefferson and a lot of uh, the people who became Democratic Republicans would routinely so- attack the Society of Cincinnati throughout the 1780s and uh, allege that it was a threat to American democracy. And then, kind of, the funny thing is, um. Around the time that Jefferson is about to assume power, this is when the Illuminati scare breaks out. And a lot of the people that I are pushing it, that I had uh, looked into, were either members of the Society of Cincinnati or closely connected to it. So it's a little interesting given the sort of... uh, Funny history that these groups have had uh, within the United States with the whole thing with the Illuminati and what have you. That you see uh, also a guy who was a prominent member of the society show up in such a big way in the um, the bail Papers and just in general how much the name
1: Robert Morris is crucial to it. it, it it's weird, yeah, because they, you know, I, I happen to think it was the XYZ affair, right? Where they were trying. I think that a lot of the a lot of the, the, the writings of Robinson was you could probably chalk up to anti-French sentiment, you know, they were trying to drum up, you know, support for, you know, basically going against the French during that time period. But yeah.
0: To kind of put in perspective to the listeners, it's it's kind of interesting because both like the the kind of Jeffersonians and the, um, the Cincinnati side kind of had their own, Westward, you know, imperial uh, aspirations. Of course, the Cincinnati were more focused in the Northwestern territories, which eventually kind of became the area around the Great Lakes and the Midwest. And then the Jeffersonians obviously did the Louisiana Purchase and uh, what eventually became the full blown American West. And there was kind of the opposition to that. I mean, also it played into sort of the, you know, vision of the United States where it was going to be an economic or agrarian power and all this other sort of stuff. So it's, there's a lot of kind of, it's stake in the sort of uh, visions that they were sort of putting forth as well and you know to kind right. of some context to this
1: it's weird because you know the the only robert morris that's mentioned the actual papers is the innkeeper robert morris you're you're basically made to find the other robert morris and by default or implication the third robert morris which i believe is the, is the freemason um, but yeah i i if it was me and i was de- encoding the thing and i wanted to get 20 20 that robert morris would be if i needed 23 to be my key thing i would Look at the Robert Morris on the Declaration of Independence and his location, and then build my story around him by implicate, you know, and 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 then then cover him up, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, if I'm you, may know way way more about the society in Cincinnati than I do. But I would, it, it was a you could if you want to join it today, you still have to be you have to prove it's kind of like the Daughters of the American Revolution, right? You have to be you have to prove that you are a descendant of a veteran of that, and not just a veteran but an officer, isn't that correct?
0: Yes, yes, yes. I mean, the Society of Cincinnati was originally conceived as more of like a, um, a chivalric order rather than yeah. like a secret society like the Masons, even though it was right. it mean, fairly secretive. But yeah, it yeah, was yeah. more aligned like the Knights of Malta or something like Knight. that.
1: Yeah, Lafayette belonged to it, I believe. And um, well, I Also the guy who
0: designed, um, all, um, you know, the, the DC, the architect, I can't remember. Leon Fong. Leon Fong. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He was another member too. Um, yeah.
1: So it's sort of but maybe like an elite group and I can see why people might bristle cuz you know like Jefferson wasn't uh, wasn't military you know he he never served militarily so maybe that's why you know it's funny cuz my my ancestry my great grandfather's name was um his middle name was burr and his grandfather was burr and it was clearly he was born in 1802 the same year that burr has, you know became vice president it's clearly he was named after him and i thought you know burr has such a bad representat- rep- reputation in the united states but it was interesting that he named his son you know, forty years later, with the same same middle name, so he he must have been proud of something. You know, uh, of, of the birth.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, he's a fascinating figure, and I mean that's you know again another thing that's sort of interesting as it plays into the some of the intrigues with the Society of Cincinnati, because I mean, in the early days, you know, around the time uh, when Jefferson was about to assume power, there was there was a sense that they might have tried to. You know, essentially, an act—a kind of full-blown uh, separatist, kind of military dictatorship in the northwestern territory, based out of Cincinnati and uh, other parts of Ohio and the surrounding regions and the Great Lakes and whatnot. Um, and then, of course, Burr. You know, I mean, again, there's a lot of dispute if he was really planning on doing it or not. But there were a lot of rumblings that he had had the idea of like what a breakaway state and um, what right. the New England area or something. And then later, in around the Louisiana or something things so yeah he had
1: what i had heard he had actually taken over a a large island in the ohio river yeah yeah see it's it's
0: fascinating because these guys were involved in a lot of like land speculation as well i mean especially robert morris he was actually one of the the leading figures in that and there was always this in the early days of the republic the fear that some of these uh these military officers might try to kind of set up their own fiefdoms out there or something you know oh
1: yeah yeah And and it was and it was perfectly possible you know Back then, because there's nobody out
0: there, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. but anyway, that's kind of another interesting aspect of all of this, as well. That uh, you, know, you can kind of look at too. I mean, were there also maybe a few little digs here at the Society of Cincinnati, and um, maybe some of the maybe. ongoing disputes, or yeah. possibly it was just dropped in there's another reference? Like you're kind of suggesting the Illuminati stuff might have been. Uh, Because they were aware of the, you know, kind of conflicting allegations, of course, Jefferson was uh, accused of being a member of the Illuminati or
1: sympathetic to them and a lot of different things like that. It's just weird because I had to do a lot of digging and I had a lot of access to books and documentation that I've never seen. You know, we have to do a lot of digging. So I had access to this stuff, but would somebody in the 1880s known it? So if they if they had known it, how would they have known it? And if they had, if they had, where'd this come from? You know, um, you know this this idea that the, the this the, you know this this Schweitzer, this guy who was a was this you know furniture dealer for the for the government of France to you know to basically liquidate the, the the estates of these nobles that they had murdered in the revolution. That one of his dealers was you know. Was Moses Hayes, who was you know, directly involved with, you know, with the Cryptic Right in its early days, you know. Um. How you know? Who, how would you know this? You know, because this was from the 1700s. <laughs> how would somebody in the 1880s have access to this if they knew that So I, I, it's, I'm not convinced of it, but I am convinced that there's somebody th- wants us to think something. You know, I mean, I mean, I, I might have known more than the guy who actually encoded it, but it wouldn't be the first time somebody cre- creates a false mythos of their own past. You know, so um, I just happen to find. By looking into it, that's like well, it's yeah, it's tenuous because I don't see any, um, I don't see any of the Illuminati material in the Royal Slick Masters material. But who knows? We <laughs> know who knows what's in there. I, 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 I'm not a I'm not a I'm not a cryptic right Mason, so I don't know. You know. Um, and I'm sure that people who are would probably be just laughing at this, like there's it's the most far fetched thing you've ever said. Um, and, I, and again, I'm not saying that it's true. I'm just saying that the people who whoever created the, the cypher, I think that they thought it was either true or they wanted us to believe it was true. But I'm not I am not Paul Stewart and not saying it's true.
0: Yeah, I mean, to my mind, it's it's not something that you can really totally discount. I mean, there, you know, have been longstanding allegations that uh, there was some kind of Illuminati presence in France, that there might have been some members. I mean, it, you know, frankly, I mean, from what I've looked in some pretty scholarly works on this like fire in the minds of men, it's not, you know, it's not beyond the realm of possibility. So um, you have the revolution in France, which, you know, I don't think was a full-blown Illuminati conspiracy per no, or anything not. like that but, but I they mean, were involved Absolutely yes involved. yes yes but I yeah. mean it, it starts to maybe get out of hand some of these guys you know the ex-members they decide to flee maybe a few of them end up in the United States they've got records maybe they end up in some of these lodges somebody who's in these lodges has access to them and yeah could maybe do something like you're saying and make this suggestion especially if yeah, they were I mean, kind of aware of the, uh, the Illuminati scare, which was I mean, kind of a big thing in the, uh, the very early eighth, late, what is it late 17th, early 18th century. So. Yeah. Um, I mean,
1: the, 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 the lodges that were Illuminized were called the Philadelphies in, in France and they, and, but I mean, I, I, I can, I'll, I'll read you something written by the Duke, Duke Philip of Orleans, uh, cousin of Louis the 16th and a major revolutionary fixture, uh, figure he wrote, all of the lodges are summoned. To, this is, you know, Masonic lodges, all the Masonic lodges are someone to confederate together, to unite their efforts, to maintain the revolution, to gain over it in all parts, friends, partisans, and protectors to propagate the flame, to vivify the spirit, to excite zeal and they ardor for it in every state and in by every means in their power, you know? So they're clearly the Masonic lodges of the rim and then the Philadelphia's lodges that were illuminized within that were involved with in in that question. They were involved in the, French Revolution, but they were not the primary thing. They were well, just giving their backing, you know?
0: I mean, I also, gosh, I can't, I think that didn't the Philadelphian Lodge have like a role in the Haitian Revolution as well, if I remember correctly? Yes, yeah,
1: then this is the interesting thing. So the, the Haitian laws, drew see a lot of the, what's interesting about the Royal like master's degrees is that they're considered American degrees. They cannot find where, no one knows where they came from. Even the York right today says they're, they're, their origins are shrouded in mystery. We don't know where they came from, but it seems like they came from Haiti. That's where they came from, and from, and, and, and or Cuba. We don't really know. Um, during the Haitian Revolution, everybody, the French who, got to, who survived it all came to New Orleans and they came to, you know, the South Carolina. And because Florida was Spanish at the time, they went, you know, they went around Florida. They went to, you know, they went to uh, the French parts of the, of, and they went to America. So they went to South Carolina and Charleston and they went to New Orleans. And they before that they were they were in Cuba and there was some lodges and it was interesting that the, the Grand Lodge of Cuba was 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 um, accredited by the city of Philadelphia the Grand Lodge of Philadelphia in the United States so it's kind of a weird kind <laughs> weird weird going full circle and when they, and when they got kicked out of Cuba they came to the United States so that that's. It, yeah, so that when what was basically going on with the Haitian Revolution is because when the revolution in France was going on the the, the Haitians realized hey there's we could take over this place there's you know all the military basically has been depleted to go back home and try to you know try to quiet things down we got enough people here we could take over that's exactly what they did so they were the second revolution in the in the in the Western Hemisphere. I think they happened in 1805, I believe.
0: Yeah, something like that. And I believe this this Philadelphia Lodge, I mean Billington, if I remember correctly, in of mind, men had indicated there might have at least been a bit of an Illuminati influence on some of the French members in it, uh, which had initially sided with uh, the Haitian Revolution, if I'm not mistaken.
1: So wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me at all because that was the kind yeah. of the point of the of the. F- French Revolution was was much more uh, unlike the American Revolution, which you we know, we're still dealing with this with the con- the, the idea of slavery and three fifths compromise and all that kind of stuff, the French Revolution in Haiti was it was a black revolution. They were not taking prisoners. You know, we are equal. We're not waiting for eighty years to solve this later. We're doing it now. <laughs> you know, so, so and that yeah, would be I'm very much an Illuminati
0: principle. Even the ones who were yes supportive, I mean, though did end up having to flee because yes, it wasn't. Um, well, yeah, so. <laughs> Again, yeah. it's another it's another possible transmission point. Again, I you yeah. know, I really yeah. don't think that the Bavarian Illuminati actually survived here in the United States in any kind of real capacity, but it's not beyond the realm of possibility that ex-members did settle here, that they might've brought some of the records over and that, yeah, I mean. Some well, I mean, yeah.
1: If you're a political refugee in Europe, where, do you, where did you go in the 1700s, 1800s? You went here.
0: Mm-hmm, yeah. Absolutely. I mean,
1: but yeah, that, I don't think there would may have been a lodge to go to, but maybe you maybe you influenced a school, maybe you opened up a school, maybe you opened a college, maybe you opened up, who knows, you know, there's a lot of work to be done. And I actually wrote to the author of that book, The Effective and, and he says that's the one area where the, you know you can read a lot about the Illuminati, but when when it comes to their what happened to its members, they only know one guy. They said so there's got to be more, and they and they did, and they they know what happened to Schweitzer. He Schweitzer eventually went back to France, but you know he had ideas of uh, he he had written a book and then we can't no one can find it. But about you know he actually wanted to do what you mentioned with Aaron Burr. He wanted to buy a bunch of land and kind of create his own kind of his own, you know, like ashram. He wanted to, you know what I mean? He wanted to, he wanted to create a in Virginia too. He wanted to take a huge chunk of land and kind of create his own idyllic state within the state of Virginia. Um, you know, he had, he had all the, all the, all the, uh, you know, all of his belief systems that he had the Illuminati, despite the fact that they were gone as a system. He, 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 he fully had all those ideas still, you know, he just didn't have a, a support group to, to be, you know, to, to, to um, help him out with all that. But he, 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 he didn't stop believing any of this stuff.
0: Yeah, see, that's like one of the things, you know, when you get into some of the speculation about the Illuminati uh, or, about, you know, Skull and Bones uh, potentially being a continuation of the Illuminati. It's kind of based on this notion that they had to go over to Germany or something like in what the 1850s to get like uh, the, the initiation or the approval or whatever, the Mother Lodge. And it. it's just like, well, but the... I mean, there really was an Illuminati presence, you know, in the United States. It probably would have already been here for a couple of decades. It, it just doesn't really. In fact, it's more likely that it would have survived here, honestly. In Europe, it doesn't make a lot of sense. They would have had to go over to Germany for yeah, that. Absolutely,
1: and, and they would be fear for their lives over in Europe. So they would. It would be make it much more sense than you just. Yeah, see. yeah, it's yeah. Remote. And
0: then, you know, again, the other thing too is there's the weird you know kind of society of cincinnati connection because um the society of cincinnati were actually major patrons of yale university it's actually the only university that they uh, were patrons of and they continued uh really i think probably up to the present day but certainly up to the 1930s and 40s and you had some really interesting people like hamilton fish who were involved with it, the society of cincinnati and yale and a lot of uh controversial movements at the time, but um well, stone I'm have and to, bones, you know, again join. a couple of
1: society or since I'm gonna have to look into this in there. So. <laughs> damn oh, you pardon. Steve. <laughs> I'm gonna have to look into it myself and get 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 into this subject. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I said, it's just
0: fascinating. You know, it's um, you know that's why I was I was really impressed with your book on a lot of levels because it was kind of looking at some of this material but from a really different perspective that I have been looking at it from so I'm I'm really happy that you were uh, willing to do this chat I kind of thought you know if we sort of got down put our heads together we could uh we could come up with a lot of really interesting stuff hopefully for people to sort of uh meditate on a little bit. So oh yeah, I
1: think- if you ever want I me, mean, I would love to be able to talk to you about the Kensington Runestone if you ever have a chance. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, sir. It's a much easier subject because I mean, we're talking something that's only 65 words long, but um, as opposed to this, it's 23 pages long. <laughs> but I agree, I, I still, I, I, I think it's the same group and it's it's a pretty interesting story. And I think it's much easier to prove than the Beale papers. that they, they were. This is a, a cryptic right invention.
0: Yeah, well, we'll definitely have to do that at one of these yeah. days. And uh, yeah, I definitely want to have you back, Paul. Like I said, your uh, your book is fantastic. I hope I you really can, uh, do the full blown revisions of the Kinnison Runestone soon. Um, and I can't recommend it enough. It's besides, you know, really being an original take on the Bail Papers. It's also a great overview of masonry in general and its developments in the United States. And I mean, he's really done some fantastic research on this this isn't the you know I mean the crap that you see uh I mean, from David Ike or Alex Jones or a lot uh, of these other sources this
1: painful. is really good stuff <laughs> um, so. yeah I'm a, I'm a fan I'm not a Freemason so the Freemason I'm, I'm not a Freemason so I but I'm just a fan of it I I, I nothing but respect but I don't I don't like if I if I could I'd join it but I think it would it would not allow me to talk about what I know but it, it is tough it's kind of like learning Swedish without having a someone <laughs> To talk to you know is your is your is your accent correct? Are you you know do you get the point of this? You know, um, but I think I I don't really need to know a lot about this the in the in and outs of the actual degrees is as much as the larger movement. But I have nothing but respect for them and, and for the most part and, and the good works that they do. So um, you know I, I want any Freemason listening to this know that um, you know I need nothing but respect for your group and um, and I don't believe that you know there's any nefarious purposes for any of this stuff. I just believe there's a, there's, a, there's a Masonic reason for doing the Beale papers and a Masonic expectation from it. And the point is really for Freemasons to take that jump and to try to find the, the, the material in there. It's not really for the layman. The layman's not going to get 99% of it. Absolutely,
0: but um, I think you have definitely given the uh, public at large a great key, and uh, you know, more broadly speaking, I think it opened up a lot of possibilities into viewing uh, some of these uh, various archaeological forgeries uh, that have been reported throughout the United States in the 19th century. And this is again, yeah, the subject- artifacts, uh, artifacts. Artifacts, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> subject we're going to keep exploring and going up to the present day. So you guys will drop by for the next installment of that. And as always the uh, future installments of the farm in general. Uh, So on that note, we shall sign off for now. And with that, as I say, as always good night and good luck to you all.